In this marathon episode of the BFR Better for Results podcast, we sit down and talk with Paul Carter, a leading expert in the science of muscle hypertrophy. Through his collaboration with his partner, Chris Beardsley, they are both aiming to help dispel common myths surrounding the process of building muscle to improve our collective ability to get gains. Our discussion dives very deep into the common fallacies of building muscle, the important ingredients that needed to be inputted to generate muscle growth, programming strategies, particularly with respect to training volume, and why he is perceived to be such a polarizing figure on social media, plus so much more. I hope you enjoy the episode. What's up? What's up, everyone? Welcome to the BFR Better for Results podcast with me, the human performance mechanic, aka Nicholas Rolnick. I'm here today with Paul Carter, aka Lift Run Bang One. Uh, I guess we can talk about why that's one, but uh, Lift Run Bang. And I followed Paul for a while, and I'm very much interested in our discussion today, talking about. Uh, in particular, volume and why that, in fitting with the theme of this podcast, BFR better for results, why that may be compared to some of the uh, more uh, other ways to approach training. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. And Paul, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on, Nick. I think it'll be a good one. Well, let's just get right to it. Um, for those that, for whatever reason, uh, don't have any sort of background on who you are, I think the best step for first is just introduce yourself, who you are, what drives you, what got you into fitness, and what what continues to keep you in fitness. Yeah, so I started lifting at 14 as kind of part of... I was doing uh, martial arts at the time and I, my martial arts instructor got me into lifting and it just kind of took pretty early on when I saw kind of the changes that were happening in my body very quickly. And I was like, Hey, you know, I really like where this is going. I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to keep doing this. And it was one of those kind of instant hook things. And I think generally speaking, when you talk to people who have been in the gym for a very long time, they almost always have kind of a similar story where they're like, there's that moment where they're, they realize that I really like what's going on here with like lifting and either my body or my strength. Or there's, there's some positive association that kind of keep has kept them in the gym for an extended period of time. And that may have changed over the years, but I think there's, everybody always has a story of that hook, right? So that was kind of my hook that got me in. And I bought bodybuilding magazines and books and I read everything I could at the time uh, about training and routines and programming and all that kind of stuff. So then that evolved later into I ended up uh, competing in powerlifting. This was a long time later. And then after I retired from powerlifting, or you could say I quit because you don't really retire from something you're not very good at. So uh, I always make a joke about that. But um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I quit good uh competitive powerlifting and i went back because i've heard this really the internet's a funny place because i've heard this this erroneous story about me and that 
somehow like I've manipulated my social media to kind of like for like business purposes, but you can literally go back to articles I've, I've written more than a decade ago. And I've talked about all the same things when I got interested in lifting. It was Dorian Yates was like really the guy that I gravitated to at the time. Um, I really found a strong association with how he talked about training. I really loved his physique. Then of course, you know, like Dorian, uh, was inspired by a lot of the the mentor principles, which came from Arthur Jones and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of tie-ins now. So when people ask me, and I know like nobody's like, there's not everybody has like followed me the, the kind of the entire time that I've kind of been in the industry, but it's really funny when people ask me, so what do you think about Mike Mentor? And I always laugh because I'm like, I was reading Mentor stuff like in the nineties, right? So it's like, it's a, it's weird for Mike to have come, become popular again when that's like so really old school for me anyway. So that's kind of, um, kind of the, the long and short of it all. And then over the past many years, I just became more and more and more and more interested in really kind of understanding kind of the deep dives into physiology and biomechanics and stuff like that. And um, John Meadows was my best friend. And before John, yeah, before John passed, he was the guy that got me on to Chris's stuff. And John used to send me Chris's stuff. And um, in my opinion, Chris is the the best physiology guy in the world. There's really nobody. It's, it's really funny. Even other guys that I consider really good are like, yeah, Chris is kind of at a, a different level than everybody else. And John used to send me his stuff all the time and be like, dude, are, have you seen this guy's stuff? Like he is talking about stuff nobody else is talking about. So I kind of got into Chris's stuff. And like I said, I feel like Chris kind of works at a different level than everybody else. And it kind of became a, I figured out um, as I was going through like most of Chris's material and what he was referencing, I figured out that Chris had essentially um, kind of laid out a model for how hypertrophy and muscle physiology works. And the first phone call with like we ever he and I ever had I kind of went through a whole bunch of stuff and he was like wow like he was like I'm really kind of blown away at he's like that was really awesome you actually nobody has ever figured out like the stuff that I put so I I kind of that was kind of how Chris and I I first started talking and over the course of the last many years we've developed a really good friendship and working relationship and uh, you know I love Chris to death and I like I said I think he's the best in the world at what he does. And I consider myself very fortunate to like collaborate him uh, like I do. So that's, how, like I said, that's kind of the long and short of everything. Yeah. Well, first and foremost, that's kind of how I've become aware of you is through Chris's stuff and your, and his collaborations and your podcast, you know, shameless plug for the uh, Chris and Paul show. Um, that is, <clears throat> While I like to talk about the physiology in, in this podcast, and I'm sure we will, um, you guys do a really deep dive into the nuances of the nuances. And it's definitely, <laughs> yeah. it's definitely something that if you're interested in learning a lot of the nitty gritty about how strength training works, that I definitely recommend. And um, so, yeah, so you kind of been following each other and you know i first and foremost am i'm a bodybuilder at heart although i'm not competitive anymore so for me it's always been how can i get bigger and and that is 
quite literally how I stumbled upon the blood flow restriction training or when it was at that time, you know, the, the guy who showed it to me with wraps was calling it occlusion training. Mm -hmm. Um, but as, as you very well know, being in lifting culture, uh, there is a strong desire to optimize results as much as you possibly can. Hell, I, I mean, I don't know if you remember three or four years ago, there was a shortage of like breast milk because bodybuilders were, were getting it because they, <laughs> they thought that the hormones that it was going to give them are going to maximize their, you know, their, their results. And so I've always had an interest in the, the application as a physical therapist and working with people that are on the fitness spectrum as well as myself. So volume has always been a contentious topic um, in that um, my understanding was that actually, um, and I, I believe it, I had this conversation quite literally today with one of my clients. It's like, well, if I should actually need more volume when I get more trained. And when that's the case, right, I can keep on adding more volume, keep on adding more volume. And in fact, that might not necessarily be optimal. And I am, and I'm sure my listeners are always in the pursuit of what's optimal. So I guess I want to start opening this up by talking about why that might not be optimal to do higher volumes and what is quote unquote higher volume. That's a very, very interesting um, kind of, as I would say it's an interesting topic and it's not an interesting topic. I think it's an, it's interesting from the standpoint of when people talk about higher volumes or they reference me and saying, I'm a low volume guy. And I'm like, I'm not a, a low volume or a high volume guy. I may find the most efficient amount of uh, the volume that you can do, or say the most, uh, it's kind of a, a sufficient amount of mechanical tension within the workout that will optimize your results. The problem with most guys is, is that they don't understand muscle growth is pretty slow. And even if you've got everything dialed in correctly, it's just going to be a long grind. So oftentimes when progress is kind of not occurring at this rate that they want it to be occurring as, and that's honestly never going to happen until you get on, you know, go to the dark side and start, you know, taking some androgens and stuff like that. That's when the results are coming a lot faster than when you're a noob. But generally speaking, when you're a natural guy and, you know, I really feel like that most of the, the stuff that I talk about is geared towards natural guys because the research is what I defer to and, the research is done basically on natural guys. You know, they even, you know, they, they go through, if you read through like a lot of the way they kind of filter out subjects, it's like, Hey, you're not on anabolics or whatever. So not that everybody's going to tell the truth, but generally speaking, most of the research is geared towards, Hey, this is what's going to work physiologically speaking on just like a natural guy. So when I talk, I talk in terms of natural guys and I, I'm even pretty big on calling out, Hey, if you get on androgens or, you know, you're doing a, a legitimate cycle, you can do just about anything and it'll work. Right. So when we talk about the, the volume discussion, we are talking about natural guys. And then if we look at the data and you break down the data, it, it, it all is very repeatable. So I don't understand the consistent confusion, kind of like when that 52, um, sets a week study came out a while back. Somebody sent that to me and I, I woke up that morning and I looked at it 
And then I went through and just did the mathematical equation in my head. And I'm like, actually, it, this was the same, the lower volume tier that had the same amount of physiological cross-sectional area increases as the other two groups. So, so the cross-sectional area increase was the same across all three groups. And I looked at that and said, okay, so the higher tier volumes didn't actually see any significant muscle growth. The muscle thickness measurements, I don't give a shit about. Um, we were pretty much can be assured that was, it was taken 72 hours after the last workout. It was only the two Fallen, other groups. That yeah. Said, yeah, it was just going to be a demon. And I had, there was a one PhD jackass that tried to argue with me about, he's like, well, 72 hours is long enough. I'm like, that tells me you don't know anything about muscle damage or edema. Yeah, I see your face. Well, certainly if you're doing 52 sets. If you did week, 52 sets that week, if you if you think all of the edema and swelling was out of the muscle 72 hours after 52 sets in that week, you don't know anything about these subjects or topics. And that is a massive source of confusion for people who read these debates and they think one person is an expert and one person's not, or they're both experts and they don't agree. I'm like, all you have to do is go look at the data on muscle edema and muscle um, damage and you can see that there's plenty of times where even moderate amount of muscle damage peak four days after the last session. I mean, this is like, there's tons of repeatable data. I'm like you, anybody telling you that, that uh, all of the muscle edema is gone after 72 hours, like I said, does not really understand this topic. So that creates confusion amongst people reading this. So back to that point was when I broke that down, I was like, and I said, okay, so when the way they set that study up was with the sets of RIR, with the sets of RIR, um, and the sets, sorry about that, my dogs, one dog does that all the time. Um, with the sets of RIR and the sets of failure, it essentially came out to about seven sets per session, which is exactly kind of where the plateau is. And all of the other research we see where they use longer rest periods, two minutes or so. So I looked at it and it took me three or four minutes to break the whole study down. And I said, they, they did about what would be the equivalent of about seven sets to failure in a session. And they didn't have a lower volume tier. So in other words, they didn't have like a 10 set a week group and then a 20 set a week group and then like a 30 or a 40 or whatever. And I think that would add, actually added some clarity to that study because I think you're still going to see the plateaued around somewhere around six to eight sets in a session for most people. And I think if you're taking a two to three minute rest period, somewhere six or seven sets is actually the higher end. So the, kind of the, in a session for a muscle group, and we're talking just basic eight muscle groups, right? Like the generally people train something like that. So that's pretty much the consensus. Every time you look at rest periods, so I tried to break this down for people to make this really easy. And that is if you're taking a, wrong, a longer rest period, two or three minutes between sets to failure, you're going to see a plateau in terms of maximizing your stimulus in that session, somewhere around six or seven sets. Could be eight sets for some people, could be a little less for others, right? But it's, that's going to be the range. That's going to be the higher end for longer rest periods. If you take a shorter rest period, which is going to be 90 seconds or less, it's basically double that. And if you just get people to understand that really kind of simple thing, that is, those are the most repeatable results we, we see every time over and over and over again in these studies is you have to go look at the rest periods. Did they train to failure? Or, you know, what was the velocity loss? So you have to understand a few of those things, but it's really not very complicated. So if you kind of get in the to fitness the industry, you're in the fitness industry, it's got to be complicated. I we have to sell programs. We have to sell this whole periodization concept. 
from super compensation and all these other things. Right. And you, you need know. deloads for you need deloads for hypertrophy. You ramp up the volume really high over the course of six, eight weeks, and then you deload and muscle magically grows while you're doing nothing and stuff like that. Yeah, I think I think what I want to just circle back to briefly is that 52 set study and how you calculated the relative amount of uh stimulating reps or mm -hmm. reps that actually matter for muscle growth between the different conditions. So the simulating reps model is one that says that any set to failure has roughly five reps that go towards muscle growth. So this is kind of a combination of looking at motor unit recruitment and the, the force velocity relationship. And pretty much all of the, the EMG studies that we've seen, um, you see pretty much the maximum amount of motor unit recruitment that's going to occur, the maximum amount of activation that's going to occur somewhere around 85 to 88% of a one rep max. So you're talking roughly a five rep max type load, right? So that's pretty much what we're looking at in terms of motor unit recruitment. So, hey, where do we have the greatest amount of activation occurring, right? And then when we have that greatest amount of activation occurring, that means that we have, we have now have a chance to mechanically load those largest type two fibers, which were the ones that had the greatest potential for, you know, hypertrophy. So then we have that combination of that with kind of the force velocity relationship that predicates that um, we got to get to a slowing of contraction velocity to experience high degree of force, which is basically mechanical tension. So when you're talking about the whole stimulating reps model, those it's looking at when is mechanical tension occurring on the largest fiber types. Right. So that's that's kind of what we're looking at here. So it's pretty solid every time that you look across uh, velocity loss studies, anytime you look at volumized studies, anytime you start looking at um, if you go look at any of the, the work that Damas did, you know, the Stu Phillips guys that they did, it, it's pretty consistent. Hey, we're going to get this certain degree of myofibril protein synthesis expression off of say if it's a set to failure or then if it's two sets to failure three sets to failure whatever and then if you look at all the volumized studies and you kind of use a lot of these same metrics you can pretty much say six if you're taking six sets to failure with a two or three minute rest period that's right around 30 simulating reps well if you extrapolate that over into something as simple as that 52 this was what's pretty cool about the model, right? So if you extrapolate the stimulating reps model of, you know, five stimulating reps a set, and you realize that with two minute rest period, somewhere around six or seven sets was where we consistently see the plateau. And you apply that same model to the 52 rep study with the way they were using reps in reserve. And then one set to failure at the end is right at exactly seven sets. And I was like, okay, so what's cool about that is it fits in perfectly with all of the previous research that's repeatable. So the 22 sets a week, quote unquote, 22 sets a week, 11 sets done twice a week. When you break that down in a simulating reps model, it's exactly right around, I think it's, I, I did the math on it. It's like right 6.9 or seven sets, which is exactly right where all the other research says, hey, this is where the plateau occurs. Now, seeing how they didn't see any differences in cross, really any significant cross-sectional area differences between those three groups, then you can summarize that that 22 sets a week was producing the maximum amount of hypertrophy stimulus that any of those groups were getting anyway. So 
it just fits in perfectly with all of the research preceding it. And then the other DeMoss research showed that um, somewhere around, I think it was 12, when they were, when they upped it to 12 sets for a muscle group, 12 sets to failure in a study, there wasn't any more hypertrophy stimulus than there was at eight sets, but there was a higher expression of myofibril protein synthesis, which means that higher expression of myofibril protein synthesis was just going for damage repair. So I guess, I guess talk about that because that's a, that to me is such a critical concept to understand that you know, you, you and, and circling back to your example before about needing double the amount of volume in order to get the same hypertrophy as if you just let the rest periods extend. So there is a relationship in some way, shape or form between some degree of metabolic stress and whatever the heck is happening with muscle damage with either higher repetition protocols or more sets or whatnot that is clouding the mechanical tension kind of area because it adds more buzz around the signal. So a lot of people in my, in my experience when trying to think about this, because I do believe that we want to just know the answer. Like I don't, think i don't think that it's it's bad to say i believe that according to a model where you're trying to ascribe results that you're seeing and expected results that actually happen and trying to rectify that and adjust and correct the model as it grows versus taking something like i have in my hand throwing it against the wall and then saying, all right, well, sometimes it's going to be this. Sometimes it's going to be that we can't discount it. So I guess going back to that 52 study, you know, 52 set example, why with the metabolic stress aspect, with the muscle damage aspect, why may there not be an additional benefit for more volume than six, seven sets to failure or some degree that gets you around that amount of stimulating reps. So if you look at kind of the, the best, one of the best ways I can explain this is any given workout session is going to have a limitation on the number of simulating reps that can just be performed in totality because of the fact that fatigue exists, whether that fatigue exists um, at the central nervous system level, whether it's going to be in the um, central motor command part of the brain, or whether it's in the whether it's at the spinal level, or whether it's at the peripheral level, as you go through the training session, all of these different types of fatigues kind of build over the training session, and then they create what I call interference effects with the hypertrophy stimulus. So if you do, you know, a set to failure and you rest two or three minutes, you kind of allow that metabolite accumulation to subside and metabolite accumulation, you know, creates an interference effect with motor unit recruitment. So the longer the training session goes on, the more that kind of remains from set to set to set, which is why each 
volume it has a, a, a basically a nonlinear relationship so you do one set and you get say we'll say 10 units of hypertrophy stimulus or however you want to phrase it right and you do a second set you don't get that same 10 units of hypertrophy because there's there's fatigue in place from the previous set so we'll say you get you know whatever it is you get you know seven or you get five or whatever you could have but generally speaking one when you look at myofibrillar protein synthesis and you or you look at hypertrophy outcomes if you do one set to failure even if you rest longer rest periods it takes five more sets to double the stimulus that you got from that one set if you're taking short rest periods and and i have to i believe if this is correct the it takes if you do if you do three sets to failure with short rest periods i want to say it's 18 more sets that you have to do to double that same stimulus that that's on the research I want to say it's, yeah, I think it's 18 or it's, it's 15 or it's 18 total, okay. but it's a really, really crazy number. So it's like one set to six sets with, to double the stimulus. And it's like three sets, like 18 sets to double the stimulus with longer, short rest periods. And that's because of fatigue factors that exist within the workout itself, right? So as you do a set, the whole point is you're creating, um, you have to get to a sufficient amount of mechan mechanical uh, tension in order to kind of reach that threshold, um, to reach where you kind of maximize the expression of myofibril protein synthesis. And that's essentially when your body's like, hey, let me convert this mechanical signal into this significant degree of this, uh, you know, biological process. And then from there, it's able to kind of determine, hey, do I need to put protective mechanisms in place to guard against fatigue? Or do I need to go ahead and add um, actual contractile units to the existing um, the fibers themselves? So generally there's only so much stimulus you can get out of a session because of those fatigue factors. And that's one of the things Chris and I talk about is the, the more we got into all of these different topics, the more I actually realized that um, fatigue was the biggest component to look at in order to maximize results. So people consistently get this one backwards, but I think what you're asking is what, or what you asked, asked previously was this, was that, one of the things that comes up is, and I've heard this before, is that the more trained you get, um, the more volume that you'll have to do in order to maximize results. That's literally backwards from actually how we understand how the physiology works, right? Like it's, that's actually backwards from how it works. So if you understand that the largest fibers, which are on that top end of the high threshold motor unit pool, right? If you understand the largest fibers are controlled there, then the they're going to be the first ones that are going to basically have those interference effects from fatigue. So the there's as kind of I kind of set that up. I think I was able to preface that in a good way. The longer the workout goes on, or the more sets you do, those are the ones that are going to they're going to get the initial amount of stimulus the most early in the workout, and then as the workout progresses because of fatigue they won't experience they either won't experience they either won't be activated because of central nervous system fatigue components so they just won't be activated uh, in the set or they simply won't experience mechanical tension uh, due to um, too much intracellular calcium 
So it's, it's, you can, this idea that you can just pour, you're going to have to pour on a bunch of volume, like at the, like in order to have like finish getting out that last couple of pounds of muscle is the opposite of how it would work. So if you keep doing a ton of volume with the stuff you've already been doing, why would your body go, oh, okay, let me just keep, I'll just keep, that. that's what you had to do. I'll just throw in a bunch more muscle. If those, if the fibers controlled at that top end of the motor unit pool, those are the ones that are going to experience, because they're the more glycolytic fibers, they're not very fatigue resistant, right? So, and then you're going to experience central nervous system fatigue, then they won't be active. Um, and those later sets that you do in the workout. And then also um, they're going to be the one that, that suffer the most for muscle damage, take the longest to recover. Uh, and then they're the ones that won't experience mechanical tension um, later in the workout either. So this idea that in order to eke out the last bit of muscle that you're going to get using like super high volumes, it literally would be, it's the opposite, literally the opposite of how the physiology works. Yeah. And I think, I think what really turned me into a more moderate, low to moderate level, and I'm probably, you know, I do a push, I do two pushes, two poles, so a vertical pole, um, horizontal pole, vertical press, uh, horizontal press, two sets, sometimes three, and then I'll have an isolation exercise, right? So maybe I'm hitting you know, depending on the muscle group four four sets, five sets max to, you know, each of these muscle groups. And I'm hitting it actually on a 14 day cycle. So I'm doing two on one off, two on one off, two on one off. So the, each, each gets hit, you know, roughly twice a week or, or so one, one twice a week, one, three times a week. Um, and I'm in and out of the gym in, in 45 minutes, 90 minutes uh, with cardio, which I do want to talk about because um, I do want to hear your thoughts regarding, you know, the, the effect of aerobic exercise as a, as, as a supplement to potentially maximizing the hypertrophic response. But what's interesting is that people tend to discount, right? If you have if the idea is, as you said, right, like you have bigger muscles, okay, that's, that's, that's great, right? So the idea that a lot of people have then is, okay, in order to get bigger muscles, since I've adapted it five sets, let's just call it that way, well, now I'm going to need seven sets in order to get more of that hypertrophy. But I think a missing link that people fail to appreciate is the motor learning aspect of strength training. When we're beginners, we may need more volume because our body is still figuring stuff out, right? It's still saying, I need to fire X, Y, and Z, or I don't have the intracellular defenses to buffer those calcium ions that accumulate, or I don't have the ability for one reason or another to be able to sustain high threshold motor unit recruitment. And for those that may not be aware, those high threshold motor units, those are primarily composed of the type two muscle fibers. These are the muscle fibers that we want to hypertrophy because they're going to not really be active in anything other than high stress or exertional type exercise. Um, and we wanna then experience mechanical tension on those muscle fibers, but over time, that then leads to growth. So I think 
that for me, kind of absorbing all this material, that there might be that disconnect that exists between discounting the fact that we might become more efficient at getting those muscle fibers that are in those high threshold bone units activated when we're more trained. But when we're less trained, it's not that way. So then it right. goes so, back to yeah. yeah. So beginners, yeah, beginners have a significantly larger motor unit uh, recruitment deficit, right? And then over time, as you train, you get better at motor unit recruitment. You're able to recruit um, larger fibers because you're able to kind of move up in that. You know, we're talking about Hindman's size principle. So as you move up in the motor unit recruitment pool, you're able to access more and more and more larger motor units that control larger muscle fibers, right? So part of that is, as you said, the motor learning process. But for you take a beginner and he's not able to do that at the same level that a more advanced guy is, which also means that he's not activating the largest fibers, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you're activating more of those type one fibers or those hybrid fibers, those are a little more oxidative fiber types. So that not only is the beginner getting, getting different adaptations than the advanced guy is, but he's also mostly getting a lot of those adaptations, uh, even in fiber types that are better um, at doing the protective mechanisms against muscle damage. So, I mean, we still need research that looks at beginners because we get different types of adaptations that we get in beginners. And we need research that looks at advanced guys because we get different types of adaptations, you know, with advanced guys. And we we get a, diff a little bit different modeling that goes on between volume tiers. Now, how significant that's going to be, I don't know. But I can tell you this. I don't know of any, like, I, guys online like to, to talk about training in ways I don't think is as i guess you'd say real as they often think it is because i don't know anybody who can go into the gym and do 12 sets to failure for a one muscle group and do that twice a week and if they i think love chest listen i love chest and i love buys yeah and getting the mental fortitude to work up to more than three or four sets to failure is very 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 tough so I can't even imagine when we're looking at these volume studies that they're exercising to volitional fatigue or volitional failure, um, that they're able to to do that. And even how practical that is in a, you know, well, that, that's also the other part about that, that 52, uh, 52 sets a week study is, um, that's not, even if that was the case, right? Like that's not even really practical. So, I mean, you're not going to go in, you know, and do 20, you know, 22 sets, you know, for, for leg. Let's just see. Let's just see how much that is. So you know, Monday. 22 sets. Let's just say each set, let's say about a minute. Okay. So you're doubling that and then you're adding a two minute rest period, let's just say two. So that's 90 minutes. And that is if you are a hundred percent on well, That's it. not including any warm up or acclimation sets either. So, I mean, you're in the gym for two hours doing legs. It, here's my thing about that. Even they'll say in this study, those guys were well-trained because I think they all had like, I want to say it was like double body weight squats yeah. or something. Yeah. So even then, 
Um, now the, the, the volume increases were incremental. So there would have been a certain degree, like they didn't go in from doing say five cents of legs on, you know, like one day to doing, you yeah. know, 22 sets. Like it was an incremental jump. And I, th I think there can be, um, you can have a little bit better, um, protective effects due to the repeat about effect and the continued repeat about effect that's going to occur over, you know, a few weeks of training. If you're adding volume, um, and increments, like the way they were doing. So nobody's going to go in and do that. But at the same time, I also just, I a hundred percent would question, you know, who is going to train um, for two hours doing legs twice a week. And <laughs> um, anybody that's putting any significant amount of effort into their sets, which is why I was saying, going back to the DeMoss research, when they were, you know, they said 12 sets to failure essentially produced, eight sets to failure produced the same amount of hypertrophy as 12 sets to failure. But um, the difference was there was just more muscle damage. And that's, and that's. Um... So I, 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 when a lot of the times when, when I see these studies, I often just question, I'm like, but who, you know, there was the one volume study that came out a few years ago and it was, you know, it was like 47 sets or something. And it was something like 10 sets or 12 sets of squats with 90 seconds rest. And they repeated that for five sets. Yeah, and, yeah, and at yeah, the yeah. end of the day, the for when I saw that study, I said, this, this never happened. I'm not saying that, that there weren't subjects involved, but it never happened the way this study laid it out. And, and anybody wants to tell me I trained like that. Cause I, I heard uh, one guy, I'm not a fan of to say he trained that way. I'm like, no, you didn't. Because if you did, if you did 10 sets of squats, or, or 10, uh, 10 rep sets of squats to failure and rested 90 seconds. I don't, how much weight would have to come off the bar for you to repeat that three or four more times. And the other thing is, if you did do that, that's your workout. You're done at that point. Anybody that's telling me that they're doing any like leg extensions and leg press or leg curl for you're not, you, it's just, you're just not doing it. So sometimes I just come back to the practical application standpoint of things where I ask people, did you even bother to look at the study and ask yourself, could anybody really go in and do this for like the next eight or 10 or 12 weeks? Much less like we're one workout. I'm like, if you did it for one workout, you'd probably be crippled for the next week or two. Um, somebody that wasn't accustomed to it could potentially get rhabdo. And then the, to, but on top of that, doing it for six weeks or whatever, however long they're getting, somebody better be paying me an awful lot of money to be a participant in one of those studies that they, they think I'm going to do that stuff week in and week out. This is also why I come back to saying there's no way all of the edema was out of those muscles by the by the chance of of 72 hours later, which is why again there was no cross-sectional area difference between the three groups, but the muscle dam or the muscle thickness measurements, which don't account for edema, there was a difference between those three groups. So I thought that was a pretty good telltale sign of there was still existing muscle damage occurring in those higher rep volume tiers. Yeah, I mean, we see that in the BFR space, the blood flow restriction space. Um, you know, we did a scoping review of high frequency BFR, where they're basically the idea that it doesn't produce significant muscle damage, and therefore you can train it very frequently. And the research does provide ample support, but but in the studies that were taking people to high levels of stress with BFR, right? Failure exercise. They actually they actually saw atrophy first in the myofibers and then over 20 days later, 
started to see the super compensation happen. So when whenever I see these volume studies, and this is again, kind of the thought process that I'm going through, it's like, all right, well, we want to end up in this seesaw where we're creating a maximum amount of muscle protein synthesis and minimizing the negative impacts that are going to take away from the balance of elevation of that myofibrillar protein synthesis, right? So if you're saying that- right, you know, If you've got can... damage, that's kind of the whole point, which is you know the funny thing about that for all of those decades when people were hypothesizing that you know muscles are torn down and built back up bigger and then we come to find out that basically if you have muscle damage it's stealing the cellular resources to go go towards myofibril repair rather than going through myofibril addition and i still get people and i'm talking about people that claims that they're they're exercise phd uh you know uh, exercise science physiologists and or you know any of those fields and they will say oh but it is true because of satellite cell proliferation and all this kind of stuff i'm like Bro, did, have you read anything that has been published in the last five years? In the last five years, have you read anything? Because these are old concepts that are still being taught. And it's just mind boggling to me that everybody has access to the same Google, I think, that I have. Yeah, and but no one, no, very few people are actually going to spend time trying to critically appraise a piece of paper. You know, like we see this in the BFR world through the satellite cell proliferation and this study that was done, it was a Nielsen study and the lead author. And basically what they did was, and you're gonna laugh if you haven't come across this, is they had individuals exercise with BFR to volitional fatigue, but then they work matched the low intensity control group. So now you're having somebody, you're comparing an effort matched to a work matched and they, they saw, wow, the BFR group had a very high proliferation of satellite cells in this high frequency. So they were unaccustomed to failure exercise and then failure exercise with BFR. So now, so it's like, of course, if you then say, okay, well, well, what can satellite cells do? And why may they be elevated? Sure, the hypothesis, the myofiber, uh, the the uh, nuclear domain, myonuclear domain, right? Myonuclear domain hypothesis, fine, you know. And there is things that are out there there. But when you're comparing a very highly strenuous program, and then you're then saying, oh, it's the satellite cells that are causing all these gains. No, it's that the control group was extremely far away from failure and thus are not going to experience the same myocellular environment as the group that's exercising to failure with or without BFR. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, Oh, I see what you're saying now. So they took the BFR group with a light load and then they took them to failure. And then they had the other group match, the same amount of match them. Okay. Yes. You would not get the same response. That's the most ridiculous layout I've it's ever one heard. Of, it's one of the most, <laughs> it's one of the most, cited bfr papers that's ridiculous and and you list and 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 you actually go in there and you read it and you're like well wait a second like that is quite you honestly know what i think that somebody tried to use that one um and you and i actually collaborated on a couple of comments about it a few months ago and we both said uh i know what you're talking about now because i said those were not 
those were not failure matched work sets. They were, they, they, I remember which one you're talking about. So of course you would see a very different satellite cell response. It's ridiculous. Yeah. But and I mean, that's, but that, but I often that's... wonder who puts together, like when that's kind of the weird thing is because if Chris and I ever sat down and collaborated on the study, I, we would like, if I told Chris, that's what we're going to do, he would laugh in my face. I can hear, and he would laugh in my face and be like, why would we ever do that? So it's kind of funny sometimes if there's there's you can clearly see there's like gaps in the you know some of these own researchers knowledge because if a researcher told me hey we're going to conduct this vfr study and we're going to have them go to failure you know with this whatever percentage of load and then they're going to go to failure at you know 10 reps or whatever and then we're going to take this other group and we're going to match them for like uh volume load right or you know, however they're going to do it but they're not going to go to failure they're just going to do 40 pounds for 10 reps just the same as them i'm like well you're not going to learn anything from that that's not going well, to tell you anything surprised, you'd be surprised at the poor con construct of a significant body of literature on oh i'm not surprised at all bro we one of the uh chris and i are really we have tons of fun games that we do with each other where we send each other studies and go let me we will literally just say the email let me know when you see it we don't even tell each other we'll send each other a study and we'll say let me know when you see it and we just laugh like one of the constant really consistent ones even the um ostrowski study which is a very famous volume tier study um, they've measured rec fem and they For only, squats? yeah, they measured the rec fem. And so there's tons of rec, uh, of, of quad studies where they will do like squats, leg press and stuff, and then measure the rec fem and be like, here, we did a bunch of volume. And here's like the rec fem didn't do anything in these. I'm like, and I'll just start laughing. You would be surprised at how many hamstrings, rec frames, stuff like that, where they use the, they measure those in squat studies yeah. or they'll use them in leg press studies or lunge studies. Um, and so I'm not surprised. I see tons of stuff in lots of studies that we look at. Um, and I wonder at the time when this is happening, like there's got to be some, there's some massive knowledge gaps that do exist even amongst the researchers themselves. And that's not me. I'm like, not like crapping on, I'm saying it's a legitimate problem in some of the data because people will reference this data and there will be such massive knowledge gaps about this stuff that it will get spewed out as fact. It's kind of like with what's going on with like the, the, the whole length and partial bullshit right now, where I'm like, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Like I'm actually having a conversation on the side with a guy who specializes in sarcomerogenesis. It's what he does. It's like, uh -huh. he gets grants to research in it. And like, he's just baffled at some of the stuff that these people are saying. And so he I, doesn't think, even I think this is a good, this is a good time to summarize kind of the the thoughts on volume mm -hmm. right in general right taking out any not say we're taking that nuance but taking out the no I, I think you can I think volume can be um I think it can be made very simple for most people right and that was it's literally my pin post and I the, on my Instagram. And that is if you're going to use longer rest periods, somewhere around four to six sets. Um, I think you start at a lower volume tier. You can literally start at two or three sets for a muscle group in a session. And if you're seeing progressive overload occur, don't change anything. Ride that out until you feel like you had a plateau. And then you can add a set. And if adding a set from there doesn't increase the progressive overload you're seeing, 
then increase, do something like put a day in between sessions. So you now what you're doing is that say you're accumulating a little more fatigue than you can you recover from on your split. Now you are adding a day so that you're allowing some of that fatigue to subside from muscle damage because muscle damage causes a, a, a calcium, any type of calcium ion related fatigue actually increases inflammation, right? So if there's inflammation in the blood, that's actually going to create central nervous system fatigue too. It's a type of afferent feedback essentially. Meaning, type of meaning that that and this is a huge important one of the most important points that that i've taken away from your work chris's work and understanding the research and being very interested in this stuff is just because you're working your ass off doesn't mean that you're maximally stimulating muscle protein synthesis if you're on, you could think that, hey, I'm working as hard as I possibly can. I have to be firing up all the molecular machinery that's going to give me those gains. And it's really just, to be honest, a facade because our body will downregulate our ability to recruit those muscle fibers that actually are going to be producing that potentially meaningful level of growth. So that the, the sweet spot, Yep. Is is how can you maximize that stimulus when and not have fatigue? Right. Exactly. And minimize fatigue in when you're lifting, you know, moderate to heavy loads. You're not going to be able to do that with light. And I, I think that the really the the big disconnect that really hasn't quite caught on yet. The big disconnect that hasn't quite caught on yet is kind of that in a nutshell, is that people think of just maximizing the stimulus is where it's at. I'm like, no, because if you have, it is that stimulus to fatigue ratio, right? Because if you have this one to 10, if you have this 10 stimulus, but you have a 12 fatigue ratio, then you're still in debt. You are still in debt, right? So the idea is to think of it this way. If I can have a seven stimulus, but a two fatigue rather than a 10 stimulus but a nine money. fatigue now i've only got i'm only got like one unit of stimulus left over right so um as much as people like to pit uh, me and like mike israel against each other uh, i think mike has actually been consistently misquoted because people talk about maximum recoverable volume but my, mike actually i you know if i'm getting this right was like the maximal effective amount of volume which meant you had the least amount of fatigue so it was the that's the fatigue to stimulus ratio to right? my yeah to my to my understanding i think mike actually got misquoted a lot on that people will try to pit us against each other because they're like mike's saying maximal recover volume and what he was actually saying was like you can recover from that which means you're just breaking even Right. So yep. I don't think a That's lot of people exactly. understood that. And he, what he's saying is like, you, you here's your 10 stimulus, but you got your not your nine or 10 fatigue, which means you did recover, but you're not really getting anything out of it. So you have to bring it down. And there's a multitude of training factors. And Chris and I discussed this on multiple podcasts. There's a multitude of ways that you can set up your training. So your training is still your best, your programming, how you're doing your programming is still your best mitigator for minimizing fatigue, how you're doing it, not spending inordinate amounts of volume on longer muscle links, not using high rep sets, um, making sure you're taking longer rest periods, you're using a, mod amount, a moderate amount of volume. These are all multitude of ways that you can make sure that you're not incurring the significant amount. Of now, when you say longer muscle lengths, right, that to me means that, or, or used to mean to me, that that's every single position where 
if you're having a uni-articular uni, uh, joint, it's stretched out all the way to the end. Or if you have mm -hmm. a bi-articulate or even tri-articulate, then it's, it's stretched out all the way across its joints. But there is a degree... Well, te technically, there's only like five muscles you can stretch, and the rest of them, we're just looking at a longer length. And I, that's... Yeah. Well, that's yeah, what I'm saying. It's like, exactly. is it is it longer length from a sarcomere perspective, right? Where they're now you're now going into the descending limb of the length tension curve. See now you're gonna see now you're gonna confuse a bunch of your listeners, and they're gonna know what the hell we're talking about. So when they the average layman is, we're talking about longer muscle lengths. We're literally talking about the like the fibers, right? So we're talking about lengthening the fibers. But what creates specific adaptions are how far the sarcomere gets lengthened and those are not the same conversations and i had had to have this one with a good buddy of mine who i do consider a very smart guy but he was still very confused about the fact that i'm like okay the length of the fiber has a relationship with the length of the sarcomere but they're not one-to-one -one, it's not a one-to-one -one connection so just because the fiber is lengthened to some degree doesn't mean you have a long a sarcomere link that's occurring and that's the whole reason why they do the whole go in and measure sarcomere like, I, I don't know if you post these up as videos but that's kind of like that's the like whenever you start having these conversations here's the frustrating part and I appreciate us having this podcast. The, the frustrating part about having these conversations with other people who that everybody else just think is a smart person is when you start saying this stuff, there's those gaps that exist in their knowledge and you can't continue the conversation because they don't understand. So when I sit there and say a longer muscle link does not mean passive tension is occurring because the working sarcomere doesn't actually get lengthened out. They don't know what the hell you're talking about. And I'm like, do you think these all these researchers that have spent decades of their lives like going in um, and looking at extended view um, uh, ultrasound and all this kind of stuff? Do you do you think that they're just like, you know, like, hey, man, how can I just waste my time this week, this month, this <laughs> next year? I'm going to go in and measure these sarcomere links. And I had a friend of mine said, well, they the only way they could be measured was like um, – they can't be measured in vivo, right? Like you, like they can only be like pulled. I'm like, what are you talking about? Have you read, read any of the extended field of view stuff? So I'm like, we, we actually can measure working sarcomere length. So those are two different conversations. So if we're talking about, but they feed get, into, they feed into they do the current debate on length and partial. And the problem, Nick, is that, the people that are talking about this don't understand those effing concepts. They don't. And I know they don't understand them because then when you start talking to them about the type of adaptations that occur, it's, they just argue and you can see, I'm like, dude, I'm explaining this to you. Physiology is complex and messy sometimes, but I'm explaining this to you in a way that everybody I talk to that works at that level we all have these same very normal conversations, but then when you get into these other guys that are just hung up on every muscle grows better at longer muscle lengths, I'm like, that's literally an impossibility or the link to tension relationship doesn't exist. You can't have both. You cannot have the link to tension relationship that exists in physiology and then say researchers have gone in and were measured working sarcomere links and then also say stuff like all muscles experience passive tension at longer lengths. I'm like, that's not even possible. Something's so, got to go. So just before we continue on with this, because this is like the nuts and bolts of, of kind of my recent clarities regarding the fact that just because you have a muscle that's lengthened doesn't necessarily mean that the actual contractile unit 
right inside of each the of fiber, the individual right. muscle fibers right. are lengthened. So the right. length tension relationship just basically is a relationship that where you basically take a sarcomere, which is the contractile unit of the um, of the muscle, of the and fiber. you can basically plot it for yep. for when he's talking about working sarcomere length. Uh, when Paul's talking about that, he's talking about the fact that throughout a range of motion, the sarcomere will either shorten or lengthen. Yep. And that may or may not correspond with shortening or lengthening of that particular muscle. Right. So there's a there's a relationship that exists there, but as I said, they're not um a, a, uh the muscle fibers of a muscle can shorten and still produce significant force because the working sarcomere length doesn't, it still has sufficient overlap between the actin and myosin. And the overlap means what in regards to the length tension relationship for people that are listening, they're like, Oh my so God. So in those instances, it means that the Z lines have not been pulled too close together. So that way you still have significant overlap between the myosin heads and the actin binding sites. When the sarcomere gets lengthened out, if the working sarcomere link is such that it extends onto the descending limb, meaning that it extends out past and you don't have any more overlap between the actin and myosin, and now you get into titan, which is a large molecule inside the sarc that connects the whole sarcomere, that titan gets lengthened out, and that's where passive tension is generated. And there's a very specific type of adaptation that occurs from that, and it is what people actually don't recognize is that's what stretch mediated hypertrophy is that there's an adaptation from sarcomerogenesis where they add your body will add sarcomeres in a series to one another and then over time now this is the thing about the model and the research that we see and that it's repeatable because every time they do eccentric based studies where they're looking at long muscle lengths and passive tension what you see is is you see fascicle link measurements that start at whatever they're pre-starting the study and then if they measure them throughout the study what you'll see is the fascicle length increase very rapidly and that's the sarcomere uh, in a series increasing because they always increase basically at the terminations of the fascicle. So the fascicle link will increase, 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 and then it will start to slow down and then boom, it's as long as it's going to get. And that's going to be all of your stretch media hypertrophy. Now, the interesting thing about this is in all the studies where they've done eccentric based training, that caps off at six to eight weeks or so. Every single time they've looked at this, that is your stretch mediated hypertrophy. It only occurs in certain muscles at longer lengths when you're training the fibers at longer lengths because this working sarcomere does not get to that descending limb. So there's no passive uh, tension generated. This is really evident in the tricep studies. And I made a post about this other day and I don't, I don't like, I don't know, like generally on my podcast, I don't name names, but there's a certain segment of what I call clown, basically the clown world that thinks everything does grow better at longer lengths and said, I misinterpreted the study. I'm like, okay, if you understand sarcomerogenesis means you're going to measure fascicle lengths and the fascicle lengths are going to increase. That's what we look at when we start looking at stretch mediated hypertrophy. So in all of the tricep studies, we have a multitude of actual tricep studies. The only one that everybody keeps referencing that belongs to the clown world is the mm -hmm. Mayo study. 
And then the mouse said he didn't measure fascicle links. And what's funny is if you go into the comments, they can't explain the results of that study. But we have three other studies that did fascicle link measurements. And none of those three did the fascicle links increase it to any significant degree. So one was even lately, and I talked with one of the researchers, and they're like, if the fascicle links increased, we would have had that conversation where we said, oh, they're stretch mediated hypertrophy. But, like, but there didn't. So there was no reason to have it. So even those guys understand what they're looking at, what they're measuring, why they're measuring it. But then we have this whole other like sect of people that are just so convinced everything grows at longer lengths. I'm like, well, what does that mean? And I'm like, so explain to me what sarcomerogenesis is, why it happens, why it stops, who it happens for, and then in what muscle groups does it happen again? So the model that we consistently use is when we have measurements of sarcomere links, working sarcomere links like we're talking about, we look at all the research where they've done that, where the people who specialize in that and they've devoted their life's work to doing this kind of stuff are saying, here's those working sarcomere links measurements. So what we've seen pretty consistently is in muscles that have working sarcomere links that extend to the descending limb for people, what people don't understand is like we, we just talked about there is when the sarc the sarcomere gets extended out and then the stiff segment of Titan, it links, gets uh, lengthened out. It detects that passive tension and there's a specific type of adapt adaptation. All of this stuff you can go, people can go look up and see that all of the other researchers that aren't like what I would consider like almost like, they're not like hypertrophy fitness researchers, but they're looking at like muscle architecture researchers. Mm. They understand contraction modes and the adaptation to them very, very, very clearly. And they'll say, well, we have in a muscle that's doing concentric contraction, we have myofibrogenesis and muscle that's doing an eccentric contraction. We tend to have sarcomerogenesis. Like they don't even debate about this stuff. It's like all this wacky stuff that kind of we have to hear about and deal with because somebody goes, we're going to do a length and partial on these noobs. Oh, look at that. They saw a whole bunch of more muscle growth than the one that did the shorten. I'm like, well, of course they did because it's this muscle and their noobs. So I would expect that. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like comparing apples to oranges. They're both fruits. They're both a muscle contraction, but they're different types because of the addition of passive tension. And that kind of segues into another kind of, um, topic where for me you know it's it's saying okay well if you have well related but similar you have you have sarcomerogenesis that lasts eight weeks okay so that means that you are you are engaging a muscle whose contractile units will stretch long enough to activate tighten when you are in the eccentric phase or not um just lengthen position right um that that then okay that adaptation happens okay so you have it now how often do you really truly need to be exposing that muscle to that lengthened position given that we know that high or longer um uh, uh, eccentric. Oh, I see where you're going with this. So this is kind of it ties in with the volume discussion, right? We were talking about training volume with like yeah, I mean this kind of yeah, and just in terms of like the the training status being like all right, well we have that adaptation. Then at some point, then our main our our main goal is going to be increasing in radial CSA or yes, building myofibular. Dude, this is such an important point. I've tried to get across to people is that once they get past that noob stage and they're into like a, a legitimate intermediate stage and then advance. 
everything is going to be about increasing um, your the radial growth, right? And that is going to exist mostly from your moderate muscle length movements, right? So you you can still use longer muscle length motions because you need to retain those adaptations. And we do even see that. Here's like the most frustrating part of like when, like I said, when people try to come at me about these, I'm like, but we see in advanced studies in very well-trained subjects, we don't see an increase in fascicle links because they already have those adaptations. We have multiple studies and that it usually shows up also in the way of when they're looking at regional hypertrophy and they're doing measurements at various degrees mm -hmm. um, from proximal, uh, from dis uh, distal to proximal where there's more, there's all, they always have those, those adaptations that have already happened in the distal uh, segments, mm -hmm. you know, of the, of, of the muscle. Right. So, you don't have to, if you're trying to maximize out your growth, that's kind of the other thing is for the most part, really overloading most muscles at those moderate muscle lengths is where all of your big long-term gains are coming from. Like, I, I think it's the 2020 hypertrophy review. Stu, Stu Phillips sent me it um, this past week when he's like, all you got to do is read this one. I'm like, is there, it, it covers everything really well. I don't know if you've read it. No, so, yeah, yeah. Send it. Send, I'll send it to you. And it, it basically covers all of this stuff really well. And it talks about the fact that Stretch media hypertrophy adaptation are going to make up a very small percentage of your overall muscle growth. It's going to make up a small percentage of your muscle growth. This is in the 2020 review. Nobody likes to talk about these. Like I said, I think there's a whole segment of people. It doesn't, if it doesn't fit the narrative, it does. You know, as if it didn't narrative they act like it doesn't exist like most of this stuff chris and i always, always laugh about this particular conversation when when i started piecing together chris's model and i was going through stuff i would go back because i'll read uh, um i read some data or i read a study and i'll go what does that mean though and when i start reading back through it i would be like oh, wait hold up this is from 91 and then i would be like this is from 1979 there are certain parts of all this stuff that is so repeatable and has been repeated for decades and decades and decades it's just not even like like i said there's a lot of the researchers they don't even they're not even connected to this community so they don't even know what people are arguing about because they're like but this has been repeated for decades right but getting back to that your long-term muscle growth is mostly going to occur at your moderate when you're training muscles at moderate lengths, right? So, because there's a couple of reasons for that, like we were just talking about. For the most part, that's where you're going to have the most significant amount of overlap between the actin and myosin. So, with that, the most amount of tension and force production is going to happen when you're at those moderate lengths. The other thing is, is that if you understand, we didn't even get into like leverages and neuromechanical matching and stuff like that. That's it a whole different get, It can get really nerdy <laughs> in there. Um, I'm trying to keep it like definitely that. But if we're a, just talking about volume and long-term adaptations and stuff like that, most of pretty much, like I said, they go into this and I'll send it to you. Um, they go into this and the 2020 review, all of the different type of mechanisms and stuff related to hypertrophy. And it's a really outstanding review. It's really good. Like I said, I, I love Stu Phillips. Uh, I think he, he does some of the best work in this entire field. Um, and that's what Stu's like, dude, you just got to read it. The, the, it's all right there in the 2020 review. And I'm like, I know, but it tells you right there. Most of like muscle growth that's happening at longer links is going to make a very small fraction of your growth and then all of your radial growth and your cross-sectional area measurements that's going to come is really going to be at your moderate length stuff from um, concentric contractions, right? So not training the muscle at longer lengths. People also get that confused. And this is as much as I'll get into that. Sometimes they, 
get confused that stretch mediated hypertrophy is occurring simply because that muscle is training a longer length and don't realize that muscle just has more leverage at that position. So well, that's, the, that's the, the biceps you're talking the about. The biceps, right? right? The biceps when it comes up over and over again, I'm like, okay, we don't have a single, and this is one of the researchers I talked to, and I asked him this and pinned the comment. I was like, why didn't you guys measure the fascicle lengths of the biceps? And he's like, we couldn't get a good view of it because they didn't have extended field of view. They just had field of view, right? So they didn't have extended field of view. He's like, we couldn't get a good view of an accurate. So they didn't want to post um, what they didn't consider to be good, concise measurements of the fascicle length, which I totally respect. That's good research right there. And they said we couldn't get a good view of the, the the basically a good measurement of the fascicle links with the the equipment that we had for the biceps right so um the biceps has its best leverage the biceps bronchi has its best leverage when the forms in a supinated position from like in a fully extended elbow to right around 90 degrees so if you load the biceps there it's going to grow best there so these preacher curl studies that they keep propping up i'm like every time they they bust one of those out dude I just like, I just put, I'm doing the face palm thing. Was it the Star Trek guy? I'm doing like the Star Trek guy face palm meme. I'm like, dude, we. Well, I think, I think a lot of the issue is there, there's steps that are being skipped or, you know, ignored. And if they had, all they have to do is this. If they do one of those preacher curl studies where they load the bottom and the top, do two different measurements. Do one at the biceps brachii, do one at, one at the brachioradialis. If they did that and they loaded the top one, they would actually have a very concise view. If they'd need three different re three different groups, bottom loaded, top loaded, and in full range of motion. Yeah. And then you'd need to do measurements at the biceps brachii and then the brachialis. And if you did that, you would actually get a very clear picture of what's going on there. So if you load the biceps brachii at the the bottom where it has the most leverage it's going to grow really well there and so that people ask questions after that like they'll be like so should i only do the bottom half of a preacher curl and i'm like if you were actually really trying to just overly biceps the uh, overly bias the biceps rocky then yes load it there and just do that range of motion there so that they'll say oh that's a length and partial i'm like yes <laughs> It's a length and partial. However, what you're doing is you're limiting the range of motion where the bicep rocky just has the most leverage. These are really different conversations. And I think this degree of nuance that has to occur where we're like, okay, does a muscle grow more because you're loading it where it has the best leverage? So it's going to do the most work. Or does a muscle experience stretch mediated hypertrophy? Those are not the same conversations. Those are two yeah. very different conversations. Stretch mediated, stretch mediated hypertrophy. That's actually those three words I find very hard to say. Stretch mediated hypertrophy is a specific type of adaptation. When we see um, cross-sectional area increase, and we're training at a longer length, but we don't see fascicle length increasements. Generally, what we're talking about is the muscle has leverage there. So that's the neuromechanical matching, the internal moment arc. Those are different conversations. The, the calves don't, the gastroc, 100% does not benefit from stretch media hypertrophy. We have two different um, sarcomere link studies that both found the same thing. They were both done at complete, like I, one of them was done just recently and another one's very old. And they both found for the most part, the, the, the gastroc doesn't get off the ascending limb. It's just on the ascending limb. 
So the whole reason why the gastroc grows in those from those stretch positions is because that's where it has the best leverage. So this is honestly be stuff that gives people clarity, right? So we need to ask two different questions. Is the muscle growing better doing it this way because that's where it has the most leverage or is the muscle seeing growth here because you're a beginner and you're just getting stretch mediated? <laughs> I'm just laughing at your dog just attacking. Yeah, she does, she does this all the time. Um, so there, anytime I get on a podcast or on the phone, they start acting ridiculous. I don't, <laughs> you you have dogs, right? Of course, yeah. They're in the other room, though. So whenever you're not paying attention to them for a while, do you find yep. that they they're like kids? They start doing yep. stuff. Mine will get yep. bones and start running around and fighting and barking and stuff. As long as I'm paying them attention, they don't do any of that stuff. But then when I don't, they do stuff like yep. this. No, I I think just to circle back uh, with what you're saying is is that we're using we're almost using this two different two different we're using an adaptation stretch mediated hypertrophy and we're using a length and partial which is a description of a range of motion yep. at which you are doing an exercise and we're saying that they're the same thing and so one if we're measuring are we measuring cross-sectional area or are we measuring fascicle length because as we were saying earlier uh, the contraction modes matter in terms of the type of adaptation that we get. So eccentric contractions, we're going to get stretch mediated hypertrophy. We're going to get fascicle length increasement. If we're doing concentric contractions, we're generally going to get myo, um, myofibrogenesis, which means we're going to get an increase in cross-sectional area. We're going to either get larger myofibers or we're going to get an increase in myofibers, right? So it's it's we're looking at two different adaptations. And then the other thing is, as you were just saying, that's a really good way of putting it, is that are we looking at that or are we looking at a range of motion? So are we looking at the adaptations? Are we looking at the range of motion? Or are we looking at adaptations that occur from this range of motion, et cetera, and so forth and so on? You have to splice all of these things out. Well, which is why like having conversations like this are important because if if you're just left to your own devices, I'm just in general a person. And it's like, all right, well, I'm saying if if we're having stretch media hypertrophy, then clearly the muscle must be, you know, lengthened or we're having, you know, a length and partial. It's going to be undergoing stretch media. Bro, I saw, I saw a video today. This is how bad the whole length and partial stretch mediated hypertrophy thing is getting. Cause I thought it would kind of burn out months and months and months and months ago. It's just it's getting picking worse. Up, it's picking it's up actually speed. picking up speed because there's people with larger accounts and bigger followings who are, who are now pushing this shit. And I saw one today where they were literally showing Branch Warren and Ronnie Coleman training because they they use kind of those partials, pumpy style reps. And I'm like, bro, you're literally talking about the 1% of 1% of genetic guys on massive. Ronnie did 24 IU of growth. Dude, this is so dumb at this <laughs> point. I'm like, you guys are talking about guys that are on like that, like grams and grams, not like like milligrams, but grams and grams of androgens in their prime that are of elite genetic hyper responders to steroids taking growth. I mean, and you're going length and partials. These guys were huge because they did length and partials. I'm like, this is so beyond stupid at this point. This is so just beyond stupid at this point. I mean, you it's, can't. Yeah, I mean, it. it's so this kind of so so this actually. Do you know what do you know what Godman, Godwin's law is? No. Godwin's law, I believe I'm getting it right, is this the the 
it's a principle that once you compare somebody to Hitler or the Nazis, you immediately lost the argument. So as somebody says, like, this person is as bad as Hitler, this is as bad as the Nazis, because nothing right was as bad, yeah. right, as, um, you know, as, as, as Hitler and the Nazis, right? So the Holocaust was you know, nothing that bad. I had, based off Godwin's law, I had Coleman's law. And Coleman's law was when somebody says, well, it worked for Ronnie, or Ronnie did it, if you said any of those kind of phrases, yeah. you immediately lost the argument. If you're trying to use Ronnie Coleman or Branch Warren or any of that kind of stuff for this is why those guys were massive, you, the argument, you're you're not even in the yeah, conversation yeah, you're anymore. Done. Yeah. yeah, and I saw, I saw that. That video literally today, and I was just mind blown. But then there's people that are like, maybe they had it figured out because the current here, here goes the there's a building body of evidence, dude. If I have to read that one more time, I, I'm going to go on a, on a rampage, like a murderous rampage. Well, I think, I to... well, no, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I think that kind of segues into the next kind of thing that I wanted to to briefly mention at this point since we've been gone for you know been on for over an hour. No, it's um, cool. It's cool. Is uh is paralysis by analysis. Mm. Right? Where I think that for somebody my passion, right? I'm sure it's yours too with your groups that you do in terms of getting people moving with I think it's the yoke buds. Um I have I have, I have yoke buds, I have yoke squad, I have the Valkyrie um so all remote like, programs. Yeah, and Garage right. Gangsters. Yep, they're all my groups and er everybody in there. The whole point of the groups is to try to eliminate this degree of overthinking paralysis by analysis. And I do all the programming side of stuff. So there's a ton of nuance and clearly in my head that goes in. But I, the whole point of being in the groups is like, just do the program. The results will come, you know, and just trust in that process. Mm -hmm. I still, I mean, I totally, like we talk about stuff. Um, we get into some nuanced conversations in my group. For the most part, though, most people were there because they want to get put on autopilot and just like, man, I don't care to know about working sarcomere length and I don't care about length attention relationships and I don't care about force velocity stuff. I just want to grow and like be jacked and look good, you know, for my wedding or at the beach or, or I, and I even have, I have, I have respectable, definitely yeah. respectable. <laughs> I have, I, no, I have IFBB pros in there. So like um, I have a wide variety of people, but most of them, like they don't necessarily want to know all this stuff. And mm -hmm. I often make a joke and I'm like, dude, I understand you're like, how do I put this? I think a lot of the, a lot of these kids find an interest in some of these discussions because they want to argue on TikTok. So they want to take this one soundbite. And they want to be able to take this soundbite and they go all over social media using that soundbite to argue. And I know that they do this because when I've posted up stuff and I ask them to explain to me what that means, they don't know what something means. They just get a soundbite and they latch onto it and they repeat it. I'm like, dude, if you want to actually learn, understand how this stuff works, go, go listen to our podcast or take, you know, the educational portal when it comes out or like, you know, like read my content and then like the stuff that I'm talking, but don't take a soundbite and go do this. But the the paralysis by analysis, my I have never steered clear of this. I've said this for a few decades. I think that it 100% ties back to something we were talking about in the very first part of the podcast and that I really deeply believe this. I know that I deeply believe this because I used to be this guy. And then when I talk to these kids, I understand their frustration. And that is this. If you can figure out what I call magical muscle math, 
then your progress will come at an exponentially faster rate than what you're feeling right now. So if you can figure out the exact exercises for the exact number of sets for the exact frequency and you you know you're doing a, a lat pull down with you know like this very specific amount of external rotation and abduction and you're just you, if you have all these perfect things aligned and mercury's in retrograde and all this kind of stuff is happening right if you have all of that, then you don't need to take steroids, but you'll get steroid type gains. How many times have you ever heard of advertisement for a supplement or a program steroid type gains? The only thing that's going to give you steroid type gains steroids. are steroids. That's it. And that comes from a guy that was natural for 20 years and then did anabolics and shit for like, I think it was like six or seven. I actually didn't do them that long. But I mean, I understand both sides of things. And the only thing that's going to give you steroid type gains are steroids. And for the most part, if you are training very hard with all the things that we've talked about in this podcast, you're doing four, five, six sets to failure or very close to failure. You're progressively overloading some good stable motions. If you're doing all of that stuff for five to eight years, you're pretty much going to be where you're going to be at. And guys don't like to hear that. Nick, you can say what you want. Like I've had this conversation with guys and they'll be like, you know, like they're still doing bulking cycles, dude. And like in their late thirties and been training for 20 years. I'm like, dude, what, like, why, why? Like you're as you were as big as you were going to get 10 years ago. And these guys, they don't want to accept that they're still, the issue is they're still in, they're stuck in kind of that body dysmorphia stuff that they had at 17 years old, where I got to get bigger. 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 I got rid of that a long time ago. And I've had guys ask me, they've asked like, oh, how did you do that? I'm like, I don't know, man. I just, when I retired from powerlifting, I was like, I want to get in shape. I want to feel good. I still want to be jacked. Um, I also think it's probably an unfair comparison because I wasn't a hyper responder to drugs, but I grew. How's, how's the best way? I've always wanted to explain this. I feel like the difference in me and being like pro bodybuilder size when I was on was I was not a hyper responder to drugs. And that's what pro bodybuilders are. They're hyper responders to drugs. They respond to drugs like nobody else does. But I was already 220 something pounds by the time I was 18. And when I was 14, I was 98 pounds. So I grew that much from 14 to 18. So I grew pretty well for, for lifting. But when I got on drugs, I didn't see that thing other guys see. Cause I thought I was going to get on drugs because I was pretty big naturally. Yeah, I thought I was going to be massive. And it just never really happened that way. Did I get bigger? 100%. I got bigger. I got I got stronger. But I wasn't. Um, I've never told this story. But I think this is an important story to tell. Now, I'm probably expounding on this at some other point in my own podcast. But I've actually never told the story. So you're getting a, a novel story. Oh, when yeah. I was When yeah. I was, I've never told this publicly when i was over in australia with john meadows we were both on gear at the time john was still competing i was still competing in powerlifting john was still competing in bodybuilding and we uh, had we had a, a drug source over in australia and john was in the off season so he liked to use eq he liked to use equipoise well he was only there with me for eight days and he had somebody gave him a whole uh he had a 10 cc vial of equipoise and he didn't want to waste it so he's like he was going to take the whole 10 cc's over the next seven days, right? So he told me, we're in his hotel room. He's like, I don't want to waste this EQ, so I'm going to take this whole vial over these next this next week. 
So he was going to have to pin like every day, take a DCQ. He said, by the end of the week, he said, my chest is going to be out to here. He already knew that. You could see the difference in his body every day. He got bigger every day. Like every day I would wake up to him. He was a bigger John Meadows. And he was massive, massive. People don't really like, they're like, well, John wasn't like the the, dude. I was around John. He was, he was four foot, two inches tall. Like John was. was, So I don't know if you know, but I stayed at his house. Um, And, uh, like I was with my ex partner at the time. John, when John was in his prime, he was so freaking jacked. Like, but but like one of the most humblest guy, and his and his wife, I think is I think her name is Mary. 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 Um, and and, his, and absolutely, his, you can't find better human beings. I mean, really, 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 just just great person. I have nothing but but nice things to say. He took care of us, and um, but yeah, I I can't even. He he was a, a big big. If boy. you go back to that to the video, is an older video with him and Antoine where they were grocery shopping. Is when he was his most jacked. He people would stop and stare at him in the grocery store, like he was unbelievably jacked. But he got bigger every day in front of me, and I remember realizing at that time that was when I realized because I was around two hundred and seventy pounds then. Oh wow! And I remember, yeah. There's pictures of me with like Eddie Cohen. I was big. I was I was very big. There's there's videos of me with John. He doesn't dwarf me, right? And John mm-hmm. was really big then. He was probably pushing two thirty five or two forty, but John was literally. I think John was five five or five six. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, but he got bigger every day, and it was during that time I realized that is the difference between a hybrid responder and me. Uh-huh. I was like, I'm not going to be a Marcus Rule or a Dorian or whatever, because those guys can be 305 pounds at about the same lean as I was at 268 to 270. And that was the, that's a massive difference, but those, those are hyper responders, right? So that was the, that's the difference between the hyper like responder and somebody. So a guy can, how do I put this? A guy can actually have good genetics for muscle growth, but not be a hyper responder. And then a guy can have okay genetics for muscle growth. Why do you think? Have, why do you think that is? I, I, from my understanding, it really all has to do with androgen receptors, which so, is what I, which is what I would think, right? But if you're already, you know, there there has to be some mediating role. Of- we don't. The thing is, we have despite the fact that I hear a lot of guys talk about this stuff, it's all speculation. We don't really have a lot of anabolic steroid research. It's, it's really a lot of speculation. It wasn't, I actually saw this on Instagram like today and I saw it a while back of like this study where they had individuals do, do testosterone and rest testosterone and exercise exercise without testosterone and resting without testosterone. And basically showing that the two testosterone, whether they're resting or they're exercising with testosterone. They the exercising with testosterone increased the most, but then when increased the second most was literally just testosterone with rest. So, you know, for me, I there there just has to be while I I'm fully you know invested in the the mechanical tension being the primary driver. When I see things like that, it's the the yeah the study the study done with the six hundred mega test um, that one is super interesting to look at right because the group that did nothing but sit at home for the ten weeks and took 
they were all noobs. Uh, nobody had ever taken steroids. So when they gave them all steroids, the group, they had four groups, right? I believe it's right. I have to, they had a control group that didn't take anything and didn't exercise, blah, blah, blah. You know, I have to yeah. always have the control. I always think that's funny, right? You need a control group. They literally do nothing. Yeah. And then they had the group that was natural and trained. And then the group that just took steroids and didn't train and the group that took steroids and trained. Yeah. The group that just took steroids and sat at home gained, I think it was, was it, it was more muscle than the group that trained. Yeah. It was more muscle yeah, yeah, yeah. than the group. They gained both, more. Both of the test groups, whether they exercise or not, it got more. Yeah. <laughs> so, so like those, those are the type of things where, you know, um, there, there's definitely some degree of, so my thought about this, Chris and I have gone back and forth on this. And Chris just says, I don't know what's going on there. That's all he says. My thought about that is, is because um, muscle protein synthesis and myofibril protein synthesis is turned on for 24-7, is that there's probably a run-up of adaptations like anything else that occurs from that happening where there's just an accumulation of more myofibers over the like due to that that response of being in a uh, basically a heightened sense of like um a heightened hormonal state there's got to be something there where um that's turned on and then the adaptation to that is the same because generally speaking as i've gone through physiology while it's messy and complex once you start kind of getting down to the, most of these mechanisms there's almost always a similarity between the mechanisms right mm -hmm. Something we didn't even touch on earlier is when you were talking about metabolic stress and muscle damage. And we had talked about this in, in DMs. And I said, in order for them to have ever proven metabolic stress or muscle damage um, caused a hyper, uh, hy um, uh, hypertrophy adaptation, you'd had to isolate it off away from mechanical change. And somehow they tried in various ways and nothing ever happened. But I think what probably happens, and this is 100% just speculation, is that I think that because myopsin and muscle protein synthesis is turned on, I I think even if you're just sitting around, if you just start taking 600 milligrams of test, hey, you never taken anything, you can sit at home and grow muscle. At minimum, you would keep all your muscle clearly, but you would grow muscle because of that super normal dose because of myops being turned on that whole time. So what's going to be the response to myops just being elevated all the time isn't that what you're getting out of training is that this you get this higher expression of myops that happens well that's that's what that's what my thought process is is that there's i think there's you bypass the need mechanical the tension need. aspect like you, there's there is there in my mind and again i'm not a molecular physiologist by any means but if we have if we already know just looking at that data that we have exercise plus steroids mm -hmm. performs better than steroids alone right then there has to be some either you know parallel pathway or something where mechanical tension now supercharges that pathway to increase its responsiveness such that when you get mechanical tension and that going on it's now boop supercharged and then when you just have that, without I exercise? think, I think this is what I think. And I said this on my podcast, I think that, um, I don't think that steroids increase that. I think what they do is, is that because essentially, um, you're in a constant state of, uh, repair, like repairs just happening all the time. 
I think that the stimulus is just allowed to free flow better. In other words, you don't need protective mechanisms for the most part on steroids, right? They're just doing mm -hmm. repair all the time. So, and I could be totally off on that. There could be, like you said, there could be another pathway that gets turned on that accentuates the mechanical tension. And then the expression of myops is even higher because I don't, they didn't measure myops in that study. That would have been a very interesting, that would have shed a lot of light on things. That's what I said. There's sometimes there's gaps in the, in the literature and you're like, Hey, if you guys would have measured myops here, we could have kind of gotten an idea of what, what maybe is going yeah. on. Cause if you just take a guy and put him on steroids and sit him at home for two weeks, let's measure myops like every, like, you know, day daily, weekly, whatever, just see what the hell is going on. Because then if we get an idea, it's like, well, we know that muscle protein synthesis is elevated 24-7. So if we're getting an idea that myops is elevated just all the time and there's that adaptation that are happening from that hormonal response, what I think is you're just bypassing the need for mechanical tension. So you're getting you're getting to that same point that's happening at the biological process without the mechanical signal. Yeah, which is, which I guess this is now bringing in to other people who might not necessarily feel as strongly as you regarding the magnitude of mechanical tension and its impact is if we see what do you say what are you saying nick are you say that there's people out there that still believe that there's something besides mechanical tension that causes muscle growth i i very well am and <laughs> so so they this is an example this is an example uh, that I've come across when I'm so when I'm so it's, the, it's the caveat to mechanical tension when we say mechanical tension is the the only driver when somebody could say well what about that steroid study they didn't well, have mechanical I mean, tension yeah because then, they're like right? they're saying that oh well we don't even we don't even need mechanical tension <laughs> and unless they're in a state where they're like this the entire time they're breathing hard they're like creating they're just they're just doing isometric contractions all just day like long existing since nobody i wonder i wonder if any of these guys would be kind of funny I wonder if um, there's only so much control you can have over some of these studies. Like, you know, in a nutritional study, you literally have to put people in a metabolic ward to, if you're going to have like exact stuff. That's why animal studies are sometimes yeah. better in some ways because you can control every variable. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if like some of these guys were like at home, like just doing tons of like bodyweight squats and push-ups and shit. And that like they just said, tell the researchers and then, you know, they're like, I'm going to go home and I'm going to do lunges and push-ups and stuff. You, I mean, you can't know. You don't, you don't, you, you don't, don't know. know. But I think <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those things that definitely challenges my own biases because for me, I'm very much an Occam's razor Yes, I, where, I try almost live and die by Occam's razor for most right? because it's like if you can explain it in in the simplest terms, that's probably what it is. And I think where I get where I get worked up in my area, right? I'm not a, a I, I teach hypertrophy through the lens of BFR, but in my area, there's very much overstepping that happens where they're saying things that the data doesn't suggest or is completely absent on. And that further adds to the confusion. Or they add on to stuff the data isn't saying. Yeah, no, 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 exactly. And then that's where it's like, it's, it's. That's it, exactly what's happened with this length and partials, longer length stuff is they're adding stuff the data is not saying. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that's why I'm, I'm like. So the with the mechanical, yeah, with the mechanical tension, like as far as lifting goes, if we pull out the whole steroid study from 
from that standpoint, because that was something you wanted to touch on. You said when we were talking, when we were talking in DMS and I don't remember how we got on it, but I said in, in what they tried to do was, and this is good on research part. They tried to, in a multitude of studies, just um, create situations where metabolic stress was isolated off from mechanical tension to see if we had hypertrophic adaptations. And it would never happen over the course of a decade. There's so many ways we could get into that. Like people still argue that, well, metabolic stress causes it. We talked about the satellite signaling stuff. Now we know very clearly, okay, we actually see an increase in satellite cell proliferation or an increase in satellite cell response due to tons of different types of exercises and none of them cause hypertrophy. So that one was kind of like, okay, we see more of a satellite cell response when we have muscle damage or you're training to failure. And it seems to be a part of the molecular process. Um, it definitely is more significant when there's muscle damage and that kind of stuff because of the immune system response and repair and all of those things. But we, if you if you thought about like the whole well metabolic stress causes we'll talk about metabolic stress quickly you know and then squash that and the muscle damage thing the metabolic stress one if you look at 800 and 1200 meter sprinters there's like this enormous output of metabolic stress it's super high it's like it's off the charts high so if metabolic stress was going to produce muscle growth, then in almost any type of interval training that you can think of would have produced significant hypertrophy, but it doesn't, right? It never did. So there was a multitude of like anecdotes that you could have used for metabolic stress. I mean, like, well, if you do 800 meter sprints and my metabolic stress has a hypertrophic response, uh, and I'm talking about something besides some of the eccentric um, contraction I mean, that, responses. That, that, to me, that to me is already it's saying that if you can have an eccentric contraction and not create significant levels of, of metabolite accumulation, well then, you know, Occam's razor where it's like, okay, well then it's probably not metabolic stress or yeah. Or I mean, um, you know, or it just basically any, there's another one they would try to use BFR to replicate met, more metabolic stress without contraction. They trap metabolites. They trap metabolites. Yeah, they trap the metabolites after. in the muscle post training. So boom, immediately they slap BFR on them and go, we're going to we're going to trap the metabolites in the, the in the muscle post training and see if there's, and there was no hypertrophic response. Well, and actually one of the studies, they saw that the females actually had attenuated growth. Yes, they a hundred percent. So like, <laughs> you know uh it, and then there was the other one where they're like no we're gonna prove it so we're just gonna inject you with, with lactic so they just that was inject. the frontiers one that you that was yes who who whose lab was that was that was that uh, i was i i just i just remember you sending that and i was just like oh and then it went on my reading list and then it kept on coming down, down, yeah, down. The, the, they actually injected them with lactate to try to see if there was an anabolic response and there was. And I'm like, dude, and I think it was the last three studies that came out of Stu's lab all really, really tried. Um, and I don't think it was from because Stu is attached. I, one of the things I love about Stu is I don't, he's not attached to ideologies. He's attached mm -hmm. to data and outcomes. That's what we need more of in this field. People that are not attached to ideologies, but are like, here's what the data says. So this is what we're going to say, what the data says. So they had three studies in a row where they like they couldn't find any way to produce a hypertrophic adaption with metabolic stress and lactate. So they're like, dude, it just doesn't exist. Like we've we've tried to mold, we've tried it with people, we've tried it with rats. 
there's no hypertrophic response to lactate, okay? Metabolic stress is dead. And yet the fact is, is that one of the biggest problems we have in academia because that's still taught. Now, here's one of the problems we have in academia. That was started being taught in academia as one of the catalysts for muscle growth, despite the fact there was no concrete evidence ever for it existing it was just theorized it was and then theorized yeah. it was theorized and then there was a bunch of hypotheses but none of the none of the hypotheses ever panned out in fact the lactate meta-analysis review that came out last year even say it says in there well we're pretty sure it's just uh mechanical tension but this is one of the ones that irritates me about people say well that's how science works i'm like no science is repeatable let's understand something good science we, we we have a model or we have a hypothesis or we have something and then it's repeatable over and over and over again we never had a single study we just had a bunch of hypotheses which tested. is fine by the way you can that's fine but what i'm saying is don't tell me that this is one of the things that does this if we don't even have anything that can definitively link it. Like it, we didn't have a single study that ever existed. It was a hypothesis. And I'm like, no, but you got to remove the mechanical tension part. So every time I look at one of these studies, there is one study. Do you know this? There's one study that came out years ago and somebody sent it to me a while back. And I looked at it for a long time. And it showed that the, the, the group that did more reps and had shorter rest periods had more muscle growth. And I looked at it for a long time. I poured over this paper for a whole day before I finally said, I'm just going to send this to Chris. And I sent it to him and he got back with me in three minutes. He goes, I've looked over this paper a thousand times. I don't know what happened here. And I was like, okay, so it's not just me. He's like, no, he's like, James Krager looked over this one too. And it's like, I don't know what happened with this paper. So there's a couple of studies every year that come out where nobody can figure out what the hell happened. I'll say that about that stupid mild tricep study. They can't explain what happened. It doesn't fall in line with any of the other research. There are some studies you just throw out. There, there are some studies you just throw out. There really are. So um, the metabolic stress would just never pay it out, but it's still taught. It's still argued. People still talk about it. People comment. Somebody commented yesterday on mine that metabolic stress is one of the three components of hypertrophy. And I'm like, wow, okay. Dude, you must have like left school. I was on um, why Matt's podcast. He's a really good dude because he, we need more people like Matt. We need more people like Stu. Um, I was on Matt's podcast last month, um, the movement specialist guy. And somebody, he had commented some content about muscle damage, metabolic stress, mechanical tension. And somebody tagged me and I was just having a day. I'm like, this is not accurate. And I explained it. And Matt's like, he is so cool. He's like, let me go, like, send me some stuff and then come on my podcast and let's talk about it. And send him some stuff. He's like, dude, he goes, I haven't reached, I haven't read any of this stuff since I was in school 10 years ago. He goes, but he goes, I'm amazed at how much literature there is now that actually disproves this. And he was so cool because he was open-minded. He's like, I want to learn, send me the new stuff. Uh, and he, he goes, wow, this is really well-documented and supported at this point that these are pretty much theories that didn't pan out over time. And I'm like, right. And he's like, I just haven't looked into them for 10 years. So if you learned about this stuff 10 years ago, and that was like the the kind of paradigm that you learned about at the time, we have a whole bunch of research that's happened, you know, in the past 10 years that actually has kind of disproven 
that, you know, with the whole, there's the, the micro tears and mechanical damage and blah, 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 and all the stuff I have, have had to hear. I'm like, okay, none of that stuff actually happened, but it still gets repeated to this day. People are still running around repeating it. No, it's, it's, it's unfortunately tough because I remember starting out, you know, it, as a personal trainer in 2011 and it's, it's dizzying the amount of complexity that, you know, is presented in terms of programming, in terms of, you know, the mechanistic underpinnings of what's going on. And it really, it transcends just being somebody interested in fitness. It, it goes. So that into... was what I, I made a, a thread the other day. I think you can be a really great personal trainer and not understand the nuances of all these mechanisms, but just understand a degree of them. So that way you can do really good programming for people. Mm -hmm. um, but I said in my thread, I said, I don't think you can talk as an expert about physiology, biomechanics, or these nuances, if you don't understand some some specific concepts, if you do not understand motor unit recruitment, if you do not understand the force velocity relationship, which both combined make create mechanical tension at those largest fibers, like we talked about, if you don't understand that, um, if you don't understand the length of tension relationship, if you do not understand the model of fatigue that works at the central nervous system level and the peripheral level, then if you're trying to talk about, an, I'm an expert, I'm going to tell everybody how wrong, wrong they are. There's a massive amount of Dunning-Kruger that's going on right now, like throughout this community. So if you cannot talk about those, basically those principles in a very informed and articulate way, I don't consider you an expert, like to be, to be breaking down hypertrophy studies and that kind of stuff, because most of those involve all of those complex topics. And if you're going to arrive at, here's how we got these results, you actually do need to understand how all of those things work and fit together in the research. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of the basics that you really do need to have. Now, when I say people need to understand them, if I say, explain to me Hanneman's size principle and you're like motor unit recruitment, like it's when you recruit motor units, smallest to largest, I'm like, cool, you understand motor unit recruitment, right? Like you, what I'm saying is we don't have to get into some deep molecular conversation, but if you can't explain to me motor unit recruitment that it's related to effort, if you can't explain the, like we talked about the length of tension relationship in two seconds, so I could be like right out of the gate, if I didn't know you, Nick, and you're like, we had that conversation, I'm like, okay, this guy can talk about this research. You see what I'm saying? Hmm. So if yeah, there I, just needs to be, there just needs to be yard marks. Yes. To, yes. To, to so, somebody, so, so, so Jeff Nipper tried to make the comment that he didn't agree with that because it was like as telling a, you know, asking a chef to explain to you about like digestive principles or whatever i'm like um that's i don't feel like that's a, a then a bunch of people tried to make a bunch of weird analogies like you don't expect the a driver of a, like a race car to understand like all the physics or whatever well actually i would kind of expect the driver to understand some degree of physics but the people i would most 100 percent expect to understand that people who are designing the car so yeah. there's you can be the driver and maybe you don't understand everything there is to know 
you remember that old Tom Cruise movie, Days of Thunder? He was a he was a NASCAR driver, but he didn't understand shit about engines, right? He just knew how to drive the car. And I, that's the first one of the first things I thought of when somebody brought up that analogy. I'm like, well, he just knew how to drive the car and intuitively he knew how to be a good driver and, and drive fast and do all the stuff he needed to do. I think you can be a good trainer. You can be a good trainer and intuitively kind of know some of this stuff. Hey, when I train my clients this way and use this rep range and everybody's a little different in these ways, but I do kind of understand these, these principles over here to a certain degree. So I know how to like do good programming for people. You can be, I think an exceptional trainer and not know all the stuff we were just talking about two different skill sets, in my opinion, mm-hmm. as a skill set of understanding physiology, biomechanics and breaking all that stuff down. So you can look at research as a different skill set than being a good trainer. I also think that somebody that understands all of those concepts, it's kind of like we were just talking about, give me a bunch of a lab geeks that tell people to do five sets of squats at 10 reps to failure. And then 90 seconds, I'm like, dude, nobody's doing that in the real world. So there's like a disconnect there, even with people sometimes that are doing the research. I'm like, put together a practical study that when people look at it and they go, here is how this is practically applied to real world stuff. Now, if we're just looking for specific outcomes, it's like when you put people in metabolic order, you just feed them protein. And then you feed them protein with, you know, like fats or carbs. And you're looking at all these various, you know, outcomes that happen either like metabolically or that happen with, with um, body composition. That's different than like the research, like the ISSN, the guys that did out there, Jose Antonio, that they did where they did protein overfeeding studies. But it was like a real world type environment where they're like, hey, these guys are tracking their stuff. They're reporting in, um, they're eating two grams of protein per pound of body weight. And here's the stuff that they're seeing going on, blah, blah, blah. So one is a metabolic word study where they're just looking at very specific metabolic type adaptations and outcomes. And the other one's like a real world study, whatever. So if we're just looking for specific outcomes related to physiology and we're setting the study up that way, then say that. But if we're looking for like a here is we're going to test this because we want to know what's a real world outcome we can get out of this. Well, it ain't having people do 52 sets for legs a week, bro. Yeah. Yeah, I think there is the, you know, and and the only the only way that I can uh, relate to this because I'm not really in the hypertrophy literature is in the BFR literature and understanding that some of the things that I see people do in their papers or the way that they're using the BFR or whatever is just tells me that they're really just, it's almost like intellectual jerking off where it's like, you're you're publishing a paper okay great but it really yeah i've seen you i've seen you comment at times when there's been bfr research done because you use it in the real world setting and then you you you, you're involved in in some of the research too right and you'll i've seen you say i think there's um the the occlusion setting actually for bfr is more optimal at like isn't it like moderate degrees of occlusion yeah like i came out with like four or five years ago where I was like, <clears throat> I think just from the, like everybody in the BFR space was like, Oh, you need to go higher pressures. 80%. Yeah. <laughs> right? right. And, and 80% when you're using these BFR cuffs, some more than others is intolerable. Like, yeah, 
And I am, I am somebody who like, like it's beyond painful uses this on a near daily basis, more for cardio now than resistance exercise, but very, very, very uncomfortable. And so like when I'm reading these papers about 80%, I'm just like, what? Like I've had patients where they're like, no, no, thanks. And that's where I've kind of migrated toward. That's what I mean, getting back to. So are we testing? That's a really great example of what I was just talking about. Are we testing just so we can have data on different degrees of occlusion or are we testing because this is a practical application setting for the real world and we want to know those outcomes sometimes people do not understand the difference between those two things so Mm -hmm. if we if we're going to do occlusion studies and we're saying let we're trying to kind of figure out a threshold for volume and then if we here's the loading that we're going to use for this kind of stuff and we know that a moderate degree of occlusion is going to give us actually our best results and let's use a moderate occlusion because we're using this for practical application outcomes. Now, we're going to use a higher occlusion setting here because we want to see when we use a higher occlusion setting, hey, we have these significant degree of metabolite accumulation, what's happening with yeah, that? Yeah, no. Blah, 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 blah. What, you know, it's a, but it's a clinical setting and we're looking very, for very specific physiological outcomes. We're not looking for outcomes related to how do we help people get more gains? Those are two different Well, yeah, and I mean, and that's kind of how I've fallen into my own little area about the focus of the perceptual experience. Because if, for example, you take along the lines of, we know that afferent feedback is going to mitigate motor unit recruitment, and we already know that in low intensity exercise, motor unit recruitment is already gonna be much, much, much different than what it is with high load strength training, then our goal should be to minimize the perceptual discomfort so we can maximize the motor unit recruitment of what we can already have. Right. And I think, you know, that's where the BFR. So yeah, with the BFR stuff, that's a really interesting point, right? Because you'll use a moderate degree of occlusion because you're trying to keep. Well, um, that's where fitting in the model of understanding how you can, if I'm all about optimizing muscle growth, and we already know that there's an afferent feedback, plus if you actually take it with lower loads, like even lower than that, like lower than 15%, which is, what we kind of have as the benchmark, we know that there's a cardiovascular impact of that will mitigate the motor unit recruitment or suppress it at some point, right? So we want to end up in a sweet spot yep. where we're able to maximize whatever motor unit recruitment we can get with low loads. And what's funny, as- what's funny is is that BFR, when you when you start talking about it. It fits in with the model for for high load training exactly the same way, right? But no, no, no. So, so that's that's exactly how I teach it. But then you relate it to the force velocity curve and motor unit recruitment as you accumulate fatigue, mm-hmm. and you you know so like all of this. Right. So if the if perfectly. the afferent feedback and the pain sensation is too high, is too high at first because the occlusion is too significant, then you don't actually get to the point where motor unit recruitment is significant enough to where you yeah you get, get maximize to the, point the where gains. You fail because it's too painful. It's just too painful. So exactly. you're actually having the same problem, right? You're basically because fatigue comes on because metabolite accumulation is so fast with BFR. You need to find that sweet spot where you like I have enough metabolites that that 
that fatigue is comes faster, but also that the pain sensations aren't so high, I'm still able to get that high degree of murder in recruitment. It, what's what's cool is, Nick, though, is like that's kind of what I'm getting at, though, is when you understand all of these principles collectively and you actually understand how they work, you can have these conversations where people actually discuss ideas rather than just like some dude just like attacking you. And that's like what well, I do. That's kind of where it gets into like the last question that I have to wrap up the podcast is what does Instagram get wrong about you? Like you posting your a more um I would say polarizing figure for one reason or another. Um what 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 do you think Instagram gets wrong about you and what what do you you know, have to say about it because like, there's a lot of, so people I, like, oh. I think the biggest, I think it's, um, there's the saying that goes, if you run into an asshole in the morning, then you run into an asshole. But if you run into assholes all day, you're the asshole or something like that. <laughs> I've never heard that. That's pretty funny. So that's like the saying, but I actually believe one of the problems is I'm number one, I'm very direct. I appreciate everybody who follows me. I had a whole group of ladies that came out from one of my groups um, last weekend or weekend before last weekend, weekend before. And they consistently just said, you are so sweet, loving, kind in person, whatever. But I've heard that my whole life about my friends. But if I'm responding to stuff, I just give direct answers. What I think has happened over the course of the last few years with people being influencers and clout chasers and doing anything to grow their audience is that they are what I would call, they do one of two things. Either they post and ghost, and I could name some content creators who do that. They post and they don't answer a single thing because they're like, there's no point in answering because number one, people are just going to attack you. Engagement um, farming. And then yeah, they don't exactly. Or the other thing is, is that people, and I had this conversation with another guy that's got a really large following the other night. And he said, it's, it's unfortunate because if you answer somebody's question, it's like having a, doing a mouse study and you give the mouse a little bit of a cookie and it keeps coming back and keeps coming back and keeps coming yep, back. Keeps yep, coming yep, back. Yep, yep. Now here's the, where that ties in. I think it's fine to answer. John had a way. He told me, John told me he would answer a max of two questions. So he'd answer a question. If there was a follow-up, he'd answer that on social media. And then he'd go on about his day. wouldn't keep answering. People have an issue of what I would consider. And I'm going to get back to misconceptions about me. People have a mis people have a sense of entitlement. A lot of people have a sense of entitlement across social media now that they're owed answers and owed your attention and whatever. And I'm like, dude, I give you free content. Like I read 12 to 16 hours a day. Um, I like that's what I do. I study all day, every day, and have for years and years and years. And they're like, How'd I get to where you're at? I'm like, do you want to read research for 12 hours a day? Yeah, but people, people, people don't recognize that. Where, where, when you, when they see somebody that goes out and puts himself out publicly and develops, you know, for one reason or another, an, an audience, especially in, in the academic sense, that there is so much work that goes in on the back end to become an overnight sensation. And that I always think back to because, you know, I've been doing the BFR thing now for going on 
over seven years now. So seven and a half, eight. And it's really only in the last like two years, two and a half years that I've really started to get, you know, more awareness of my position in my little corner of the industry. But that comes with I'm working all the time. My, my fiance and nobody ever, and my two dogs, it's the iceberg. It's the iceberg. It's, so it's, it's like, it, it just, it, and then there's only a certain amount of people that are insane like us that just want to know. And I'm a muscle head. So, so, I, so if, if every, if all of social media went away tomorrow, I would still want to know everything that I read about every day right now. And I think that that's a massive difference Man, I could do this topic for a while. And if you'll let me uh, allow me a little bit of room here, I think if TikTok <laughs> and Instagram went away tomorrow, 90 plus percent of the dudes on social media would get out of the gym, mm -hmm. like that are like posting workout stuff. I don't think, I think that the, the segment of dudes that are in the gym because they really love the gym and love training or love reading research. It's very small. I think most of the time I see massive like groups of kids in the gym. Now I've never seen before in my life. And I've been in the gym 30 something years and I, it's all, they all have tripods. It's all for like clout. They're all chasing. Oh attention. my gosh. It is insane to yeah, me. Yeah, dude. I, people, so that, the, people that just started, I, I could tell they just started training. I can't tell they've ever picked up a weight. Oh my goodness. It is, it, it's a new, it's a Gen Z thing. So this is, I think, I don't think it's because they love the gym. I think they see it as a way to get social attention credit. and clout and whatever. I didn't get into the gym for that reason. I, we didn't clearly, we didn't have social media, their internet or whatever. When I got in, I love training and I still love training. I, I really have that conversation in my head still to this day. I'm like, I still love training people are like do you still progressively i'm like i find stuff i can still progressively overload and i still i don't think i'm gonna get it but i just love training like i could not i can't fathom ever not training so i've been training for 34 years now i can't imagine not training so i think when people this misconception that they have about me is number one i grew up with a military father my dad was in the military for 22 years so the other thing is, is I was in the military, I played football, coach, I was in MMA, I've had coaches my whole life and that kind of stuff. And for the most part, my most favorite coaches were hard asses and they expected a lot out of you. Nowadays, it, it's like you can't even get people to read a caption on Instagram and it's character limited. So they have short attention spans. They don't really have like a desire to learn. They say stuff like, just explain it to me in third grade terms. That's why they like the theory that muscle is torn down, built back bigger, because it sounds easy to roll off the tongue. But if I have to tell you that actually that's not how it works and how it actually works is the repeated bout effect, and they ask what that is, and I have to say, well, there's fiber type shifts that occur so that there's more uh, oxidative type fibers due to more mitochondrial density. And then that there's stuff that happens after that from the cellular process that can actually does myofibril splitting and then increases, you know, radial growth. Like they don't want those answers. They don't want those answers because because the whole generation right now is all about instant gratification. Yes. So if somebody says they get mad because they say, hey, but that is how it works. I'm like, that's actually not how it works. The the whole micro tears, mechanical damage, muscles torn down, built back bigger. That's not how it works. That's never been how it's worked. 
um, and you like that as an answer because it sounds very simple, but that is physiology is quite complex. It's like going to a surgeon and being like, bro, just break down this vascular surgeon shit in simple terms. I can understand. I would never go to like a vascular surgeon and be like, bro, just stop using all these big words like that. A hole. Just explain this to me in third grade terms. Like explain to me in a way I'm going to understand. I would not, I would expect the, the vascular surgeon to tell me to get the F out. Because like he's like, bro, I've spent like decades learning this stuff and operate on people, and there's like degrees of stuff I know. Chris told me there's there's some guy stuff he tries to read that's really hard. I won't even go there. Chris tells me that guy's stuff is hard to read. I'm like, don't send me that. Don't send me that. I'm like, I'm just in a spot where I'm beginning to feel good now. Don't send me that. You know, like because he'll be like, this is a really hard read. I'm like, then don't send me that. I'm like, don't send me because there's there's other next there's always a next level of stuff. Sometimes I'll get on YouTube though, and I'll go through like doctors. There'll be doctors, and I'll I'll graph some of the stuff they're talking about. Like I'm talking about really deep levels, and then once they'll start getting off into other stuff, I'm like, all right, I'm getting out because then <laughs> I know how I work, and I want to know that stuff. And you can't know everything, but the the getting back to the misconceptions about me is that. People's like, I've heard like many times, first off, number one, I probably block 10 people a day. And that is because they either come there to troll me or they give out, they try to coach on my page. Um, they'll try to like, they'll try to, they'll, they'll start going through and like spamming, spam coaching on my page. And I'm like, you got to go. Cause I, I'm not gonna allow you to do it. The reason why I won't allow that is because I'm misquoted all the time because other people will comment something and somebody will say, Paul told me this. I'm like, no, that's what another dude on my, so you're misremembering. You're remembering reading something on my account, but it wasn't for me. Somebody told me in a Q and a, I did last week. This is how bad it is. They said, you put up a screenshot one time of aspirin, caffeine and Nicorette gum. Explain what that is. I'm like, I have never posted that in my life. So what? I get miss yes. So I guess there used to be a fat burning stack of nicorette gum, caffeine, so nicotine, caffeine. There's all appetite suppressants. Right. So somebody posted that up and like here's like a fat burning stack and they like explain that to me. I'm like, I have never posted that up a day in my life. That happens to me every day. So if somebody comes and they start start spam coaching, I'll just block them. And if somebody comes and they start arguing with me and they don't understand, you know how we were just going through all the nuances and I'll be like, uh, you're just going to argue with me because here's the data. Cause I mean, you go through my stuff and you see like, here's the data, here's the study, here's how this is explained. And when they come through and they'll just start arguing for the sake of arguing, I just get rid of them. And all of this is for my own sanity. I've talked to half a dozen other educators and people with large account content creators. And they all tell me the same thing. They, they say the same thing. I love the block button. They like, I love it. It's a, my favorite part of social media. Just block, <laughs> block, 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 block. I hear that every day. And if your account gets large enough, Nick, you'll one day you'll be like, I love that block button. It's my sanity. So like there's this other people have whole followings of hordes of people that I blocked and they just whine and cry. They're just wet blankets uh, of dudes just crying. Paul blocked me. Not because you're right, bro, because you're they always leave out this stuff. Like yeah. I told, they, they always leave out this stuff. Like I told Paul go fuck himself. <clears throat> I 
I told Paul, I hope his daughters get sexually assaulted. I do. I've been told all sorts of horrible stuff and I block these people. And then they go and say, Paul blocked me because I disagreed with him. I'm like, no dude, it's because you came on my page and told me go fuck myself or you're an idiot. And I'm just like, I just block you. So sometimes I will, I will actually DM them and troll them back and then block them. So they don't get the last <laughs> word. And then they go and they, they whine and complain about this. But that's just a part of my entertainment for the day. But as far as if somebody has a genuine question, and I'll, 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 you know what, I'll proposition you with this question. Can you tell when somebody is actually being passive aggressive in their question yes. towards you? Okay. I hate that. If you have a legitimate question, I can genuinely tell, hey, Paul, you know, like I read this, like, um, how does this particular thing actually work? You can tell when you get that question, the person genuinely interested in learning. You can tell when you're getting a passive aggressive question that is challenging you as to like, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You know, when you get those, right? People act right. like I haven't been on the yeah. internet for like decades and that I don't understand passive aggressiveness. <laughs> I'm like, I don't have time for your passive aggressiveness. And then the second thing on, if you come on and you're just like challenging me with stuff where I can tell you don't know what you're talking about, I just get rid of you. All of this is just for my own sanity, right? Like if somebody wants to come on and I can tell that's a smart guy, and that he just like missing a few little things. I will have a totally respectable debate and I've done it a million times with him. But the other thing is I don't think Instagram or TikTok, these are not, these are nope, not like, I already know where you're going with this. No, nope. this is not where you have true educational discussions, right? Nope. Like that's, you, it, you just don't like, it's, yeah, I mean, I, I started to, you know, I use some things, for education, but really like I've kind of figured out that my best engagement, you know, you saw like the other day, like me posting, like I'm a physical therapist or like, yeah. you know, I'm a personal trainer, like these, these stupid things, because the attention span on these platforms is so, so low. So low. And it's even, <laughs> and it's crazy because now that Bro, they people, somebody posted to me the other day, it was either today or yesterday, he got blocked too. He said, your account sucks now. You just repeat yourself, blah, blah, blah. Dude, do you know how many times a day I get asked the same questions? Because <laughs> number one, not everybody sees your content. Nope. You clearly, like, you know that. You and I have talked about that. Not everybody sees your content. Number two, not everybody finds the same type of message digestible in the same kind of way. So sometimes you can give a message, the same message, two different ways. The first way, the person doesn't get it. The second time you say it, but it's in a different way and they get it. Mm -hmm. So some of this stuff I repeat because it just started, I've started to see the turn over the last few months where people are really starting to kind of get this stuff Chris and I have talked about it. You've talked about it. I've heard like other people talking about it. Jake has talked about it. There's been a couple of people that all kind of understand the modeling and how these, these various principles work. And I, when I see this shift happening, it really does make me happy because I see these young guys who do want to learn they want to grow and get better. And I see when they're asking good questions or they're repeating stuff and then they've listened to the podcast and they're like, Hey, here's this part, this part, this part. And I'm like, Oh, you're missing this one little piece. Put that in there. And then they do like, Oh man, that's cool. Thanks so much. I love those guys. Those guys that really want to learn those young kids are super freaking inspiring to me. The ones that have come along and they're, they're just the tribal ones from other tribes where they follow other accounts and they're basically yeah, yeah. those tribal guys and they come on and they, they have the past. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. I have, you know, I don't, I don't see those anymore, but I know that you do. Um, oh, daily. And 
So anyway, I mean, I got my own tribal people, but don't act like, man, I'm not sitting here with like across all social media platforms, like, you know, half a million followers or whatever. And like, I don't have like some tribal people. My thing is this, and I, I'll say this, Nick, this is the truth. One misconception about me is number one, I heard there's some chick. She's a, an N one tribal chick. That's like Paul cherry pick studies. I don't fucking cherry pick studies, bro. If you send me a study, or a multitude of studies and like here's a part that's missing that you need to fit in i will come out and say here's this here is something i was wrong about i don't care about being right that's definitely a misconception so it took all that for me to get here i don't i don't if i'm wrong i'll be like dude here's some data like how many times have i said this if we get a bicep study that shows there's fascicle link increases from this i'll be like i was wrong biceps growth and stretch mediated hypertrophy i'll jump up and say we are now we didn't have data that looked at this i have asked for the last i don't know how many years i'm like can somebody send me anything that shows fascicle length measurements for like biceps in a study we don't have one and i even asked comes, that also comes though with you understanding or having a model of yes. some sort. And I think that that is super important for how you're approaching your education. Dude, I want the model to be good for people. That is a hundred percent. When I, when I really broke down the way Chris had put everything together and figured out the model and you, you and I arrived and communicated and you had figured out multiple pieces of the model too. And then I want the model to be good, man. That is one of my biggest passions now is I want the model to be good. So if you, somebody has like data here, Paul, here's data that like you need to fit in because it's a part you're missing. I'm like, dude, please send it to me. So that way I can say, if there's something I'm wrong about, I was wrong about this part. Dude, I'm not out trying to be this, like this right merchant. Like, I'm not like, here's like, I know every, we don't know everything. There's going to be data that's going to come out five years from now that's going to continue to fit pieces in of stuff that we're missing. Like I said, we don't, you know, what we have, we don't even have, like, we don't have, we don't have um really good internal moment arm data for all different motions for the pecs. We have one, one longitudinal hypertrophy study for the lats, not even divisions, just the lateral border. Like, in other words, there's a lot of things we don't have. And so we piece in together the things that we do have. And then we try to give the best explanations for that. But if something comes out, if there's like a really good, like really good data that comes out for this and it's really well done and shows this and then it's repeatable a few more times, we're like, okay, that actually corrects something that we once thought. I'm not going to be that guy that's 10 years down the road still clinging to metabolic stress when I'm like, dude, this has just never panned out. Like, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not trying to be right. I'm really, I have a passion for physiology, biomechanics, and this model. And like, here's how we can make programming really great. I've had people say stuff like, well, nothing has changed in terms of what we know necessarily about like anatomy to some degrees. But as far as like how we know how to program now compared to 10 years ago, astronomically different. And I've got people in my groups that are decades long lifters that are like, I've never seen progress like this. And it all comes from what we were talking about earlier. Let's bring fatigue down as much as possible, maximize that stimulus. And then we're going to get outcomes we hadn't been getting before. Mm. So I think that a huge part is misconception is I'm not trying to be right i'm trying to give everybody the best data the best way that i can and i feel very fortunate i 100 percent 
um, will die on the hill of, I, I feel like I work with the best physiology guy in the world. So if I'm wrong about stuff, I'll go to Chris and Chris be, and I'll say, Chris, where, what am I missing here? What, what is I'm doing? And if he and I don't know, we know people and those people, our people know your people. And we'll contact your people. Like I, I have a reach now that's pretty good in terms, like I said, I have an email ongoing email conversation, um, with a guy named Vincent who specializes in sarcomeriogenesis. That's that's what he he is an actual. He's in the like in surgery and specializes in sarcomeriogenesis and fascicle links and and sarcomeres and like that's what he does. So and my whole point in having conversations with him is let's really get down to like even more nuanced degrees mm -hmm. in what's going on at um, like the sarcomere level. And continued those conversations. So my my goal is to help fill in those gaps for people who other people who have a passion for this stuff. And that I dude, I get I get aside from the, the crappy DMs for every one of those I get, I get 10 that says, um, I've like applied your principles and stuff and my training is the best it's ever been in my life over the last year or i'll get somebody say i learned stuff that helped me get my degree from stuff that you taught me like so i get like a multitude of really amazing dms so to all those people out there i love you you make my life fantastic daily with getting those so keep those coming here's the thing nick at the end of the day um i think it was winston churchill who said um if, if you make, you're going to basically something to the tune of you made a few enemies, that's good because it means you stood for something and you cannot ascribe to a particular set of principles or a paradigm that you live by and not have people hate you for it. Mm. And then you can have some people love you for it. And some people hate you for it. But if your whole goal in life is to be liked by everybody, it means that you don't stand for anything. So I, 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 I agree. I think, I think that it's also the way that whatever disagreements is handled. And I do think that um, you, sh it is all at the end of the day, somewhat healthy discussion in the industry regarding what's going on, but the added complexity that it gives to the end user, who's just looking to, get as jacked as possible now has a million different things to think about. And now I'm getting talked about with, for example, getting a text from a client. Well, what do you like more? Do you like a trap bar or do you like a goblet squat? Or do you like, you know, and it's just like, and, 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 and it just, it really just goes back to that paralysis by analysis that's plaguing not only the fitness industry, but just everyday people and us as a society in the United States 70% of people are overweight or obese and worldwide, I think it's 17% of people are actually hitting the physical activity recommendations is that that's the recent one that was from BGSM um, that I kind of skimmed over. And I was like, that is the, having conversations. Like you know, it's wild. You know, it's wild. We never get off of that. Like that's a wild topic to me. Obesity didn't really exist until like the 1950s. With what is that? Is that the 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 emergence of the commercial? The commercial yeah, that's right. Like that's of... right. I don't know if that's legitimately like. I mean, clearly there's like obese people existed before that, but they were incredibly rare. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. like yeah. 
Uh, they're incredibly there, but obesity, like we know it now, didn't exist till the 1950s. And what they what they say is like as part of the industrial revolution or whatever is because yeah. Then we had a multitude of like overly processed, hyperpalatable foods, and that was like a huge part of it. I don't know if that's like with the whole thing now. They're like obesity is like genetic. There's probably a genetic component to it. I don't. Oh yeah. The, the idea that it's just eat less and move more. I don't think it's that simple, but at but at I don't the think core. the research the research has on obesity has has said that. Um, I think that that's a myopic view of obesity, but there's some degree of truth to it. <laughs> yeah, well, but 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 saying circling back to what what we're talking about, the common example is is. Oh my God, I need to do this exercise, this exercise, this exercise, and this exercise. And then I need to do X amount of this uh, exercise, like cardio. Yes. So it's like, if I can't do that, then you know what? I better, I'm better off not doing anything at all. And I think that it really needs to. You know what? What that's actually, that's a whole interesting conversation that like we could have expounded too. It's like the magnitude of exercise that you have to do to actually see not just results but significant results is very very small yes so there was the one study one of my favorite studies is that very it's a six month long study where they took young guys and old guys and they trained them uh they had them they did legs i want to say it was they started i'd have to remember but they did started off with so many months for detraining them. And I think they were doing, I want to say it was, it was 24 sets of legs for legs a week. I want to say that's what it was. And then they, they cut that down. So they were doing three sets of three exercises, three times a week. Do the math for me. I'm terrible at math. How, how much is that? Ter terrible. Three sets of three exercises. Three sets of three exercises. 20, yeah, it was 27. Okay. Yeah, it was 27 sets for legs a week. And they reduced it to a third of that. So they're doing nine sets a week. They were doing the three three sets um, of three exercises um, once a week. Right? So they're, they went to nine sets a week. So it's a, mm -hmm. a third, right? They kept gaining. They were gaining at the 27, these were noobs, they were gaining at 27 sets a week. When they went, took the took them all down to nine sets a week, they kept gaining. They didn't just like maintain; they kept gaining. So then, when they took them down to um, one set of those three exercises once a week, they maintained. So from twenty-seven sets, that goes back to a conversation we had earlier, right? As like if you go from to just double the stimulus of three sets, you gotta go like the 18 sets if you're taking short rest periods. Very similar, right? So they just to maintain their gains. I think it was the young guys, the older guys didn't quite maintain, but they were literally in their 60s and 70s. So a little bit mm -hmm. different. But the younger guys were 20s and 30s. So the younger the guys in their 20s and 30s could literally maintain all the growth they got by doing three working sets. Three sets to failure a week off of 27 yeah, a ninth, sets. A ninth of the volume. A ninth. One ninth of the volume. No, so, I mean, that's, that's And great. so what I was getting at right there, what you're talking about is, is that, dude, if you can get into the gym and do, and I said this for a long time, I think probably that's about where the maintenance is, is maybe three sets a week two sets a week or three sets a week directly for a muscle. So like literally like three sets of leg extensions a week mm -hmm. could would maintain quad size, you know, for most people. 
Um, and then literally taking that, if you did six sets a week, you would grow. Six to nine sets a week, you would grow. So it takes so little. That's not a lot, dude. Like, mm -hmm. do you think about it, right? Like, you could do, even if you're doing a full body routine, um, if you do three sets of leg extensions one day, three sets of uh, squats one day, uh, and you did three sets of like a lunge one day, like you're going to, that's nine sets for the week. You know, yeah. you did. I just think you, that the barrier, you know, and this is where it all kind of feeds up and I do want to wrap up. Um, but this, where it all kind of feeds into what we discussed, which is if we have all this complexity that is out there in the fitness realm of all these, you know, nerdy, guys great i'm a nerd nerd guy too or yep. nerdy guys that aren't lifting now that they're creating experiments that really aren't practically relevant coming up with conclusions that are just going to stray us further away from the the quote unquote path then all of that then trickles into social media through educators such as yourself and others that are then taking that research and putting it out there to the masses, the masses are reading it. And now they're like, Oh my gosh, it's that paralysis by analysis. It's like, I can't, I don't even know what to do. And it's making exercise more inaccessible. Yeah, I, for a while there, there was a, I don't know if you remember this. I it's, it's still there, but not the, the magnitude of it now is not as much as it was where people were really concerned about finding all of these different exercises to train every division of a muscle at a different length. Do you remember that going on like yeah. a couple years ago? Yeah. So everything at a short length, everything at a long it was the length. N, like N1, like, and, and yeah. all these different like isolation type stuff that honestly. Yeah. That's is, another part of the clown world. Yeah. It's just, so, it's just like, it's just like, listen, I get it. You, you know, you want to be able to, to understand and 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 say yeah maybe there is a little bit of complexity there with isolating certain particular branches of muscle groups but that's not 99.9 percent .9 of people that are going to be watching your content and that well th again that comes back to the nuance of so if you're this is where I think people, the whole optimal thing help actually just cause people to get in their way more than helping them was that, um, you had to know when people would say, when I would, they would say, what's a, a, a movement that trains this muscle at a short length or whatever. And then, and eventually what caused me to kind of get away from that stuff was really understanding fiber architecture, mm -hmm. because when you start to understand stuff like leverage and, and, um, you, you start to understand the force velocity relationship, you begin to understand, you see things very different. Sometimes when people ask me, like about the model and explain it. I can see it in my head, but I can't, I don't know if you're like that with it in my head. I can do the whole model in my head and it makes complete sense. So that way, some, sometimes when somebody asks me a question and I'm trying to figure out, but why would you even be asking this? Because it doesn't make any sense. So well, somebody it's, just like, it's just gaps. And that's where it, it, it does take some degree of, of responsibility so what we're talking about what i was getting at there what we're talking about remember when we were talking earlier about active we we're talking about active insufficiency or for muscle could produce a significant force at short uh as short fiber links because the sarcomere length either was too short or still had enough overlap to produce yeah, yeah. force 
So then when people would ask if you understand certain muscles don't really experience significant tension at short lengths, there's no reason why you need to be searching for a way to load it or train it at a short length, right? It makes yeah. no sense because you're like, okay, it's not going to grow there. So the same way with the longer length stuff, right? Like say if that, if when it comes to passive tension, you still have to have activation. So an activation is in strength training. So you still have to have leverage right at a longer length or the fact well, that that's yeah that's the concept that's missing is that just because you're exposing a muscle to a particular range of motion doesn't necessarily doesn't mean, mean it has muscle. leverage there doesn't it, mean it has leverage there yeah so if it doesn't have leverage there then the nervous system is not going to dial up motor units to allocate activation for those fibers because everything your body does tries to be efficient mm -hmm. efficiency that's why it's not very good at burning calories right but it's really good at storing them right really good, good. <laughs> really good too really good, good sometimes right so if you that was when that was going on i think i was even involved in that stuff and i've really tried to it's like more or less kind of apologize because once i really started understanding way way more about physiology and muscle architecture i started understanding i was like whoa there's so much right now about this stuff that just doesn't matter it just doesn't matter. And that's why I tell guys now, I'm like, here's the thing. And I think the way I can, can wrap this up to make it, and I try to, to give this to guys, is like, number one, pick a stable movement, right? Because you don't, you don't want to spend weeks or months or whatever trying to develop these neural adaptations you don't need to develop that don't go towards developing the muscle. And we're just talking about hypertrophy. And people are like, well, some people train for other things. I'm like, tool, man. I totally know People train for other things. Don't act like I don't know that. Like I 100% know not everybody out there is just trying to get jacked. Some people are like, well, I'd like to do a standing press. I'm like, well, do it, bro. I am just telling you if your goal is to grow your delts best, sit your ass down. Like don't, there's no reason to stand up to train the delts. Like I'm going to stand up and do a standing press overhead to train the delts. I'm like, does it train the delts? Absolutely. Is it the best way to do it? Absolutely not. So I tell guys to kind of make this easy for you. This is kind of my repeated mantra. Use a stable exercise. Use a motion that's good enough. You do not have to have a perfect motion for everything. Mm -hmm. So you know what I mean? Like that was part of the whole optimal thing is trying to find this perfect motion. I'm like pulling, you know, like, yeah. You know, those old Nautilus machines at Nitro Line? Those are like 20 something years old and people were trying to act like sagittal plane poles for lats were something somebody just invented the last few years, the dumbest shit I was ever involved in. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, these Nautilus machines, they're literally built for the sagittal plane. They're built for it. They were made 20 something years ago. And there were guys that like, no, we knew watched it. We're like, it's not just pulling on cables. I'm like, okay, no dude. It actually is just pulling on cables. You're just pulling on cables. It's not that complicated. And I think that made things worse for a lot of these young guys because they, they, I, I think a lot of them really are. They're like, man, I just trying to get the best workout in and get the best progress. So they're like, I had to do all these complicated things. I'm like, dude, here's how uncomplicated it is. Find a good motion. Like, and that's stable that has a hyper high uh, high potential for loading like so if it's stable it's going to have a high potential for loading for the most part right the more stable an exercise is but if the motion's good enough that's like remember like the whole thing was like oh when you do a cable lateral raise it's got to be this high or that high or whatever i'm like dude you're doing abduction 
And do you know, like the lateral delt basically has good leverage all the way, pretty much all the way through abduction from the time you start lifting your arm. So if you want to change that cable height so that you just load it at different degrees of humor elevation, that's cool. But one way is not going to be superior than the other. Like that is overthinking. They're like, what if you set the cable lower? I'm like, well, you kind of get a more even resistance profile. What if you set the cable higher? Well, it's loaded a little more at the bottom. At the end of the day, Nick, you're not going to walk into the gym and see a dude with delts and go, that dude loaded his, the, the cable lower. You're not going to do that. You're never going to, you're never going to, it was Joe Bennett. I love Joe Bennett. Um, Joe had this conversation with the dude who kept trying to convince him, like, this is a lateral tricep exercise, lateral triceps because of this and the shoulder angle and this and whatever. And Joe finally goes, dude, that's super nerdtastic. But can you show me a dude who did those and just like has these super big lateral triceps? No. At the end of the day, that stuff's going to make a minuscule amount of difference. Like it really is. So some of these things that we discuss, I do agree. It's because we're just nerding out and they're no tactic and they're fun and interesting. But from the practical application standpoint, I put it like this, Nick, my best incline press was 475 pounds and I never had a giant chest, but my best wow. overhead press was 385 behind the neck. I did press by the neck with 385 and I did a set of eight with 315. All strict seated, press behind the neck, right? So my shoulders were really strong, but my pec pressing was strong because my shoulders were strong. So I could have whole finagled a whole bunch of things, but, uh, and I heard Larry Will say this, and he's like, he, when he started doing more mind muscle connection, his upper pecs finally grew. I'm like, all that probably happened was he changed his mechanics. So if he saw some growth that he didn't have before when he was incline pressing 600 pounds, then it's probably just because he changed his mechanics. So he got some motor unit recruitment because he changed his mechanics. And now he was actually having to recruit motor units that he had not used before. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what we talked about before was like the end of the day, you eventually at the end, it's not going to be your volume. It's going to be about motor unit recruitment, mm -hmm. but making this again, wrapping this up simple for guys, Use a stable exercise. And when I say use a moderate amount, start at the lower end of the volume tiers, two or three minute rest periods, two or three sets for that muscle group in a session. And then do that once or twice a week. Figure out your frequency for you, right? Like you said, one week's twice a week, the other time's three times a week. I could never train a muscle three times a week. I just, just didn't work for me. It's usually one time, one week, twice the next week. That's well, more, I'm learning, I'm learning as I'm going through this that my legs take longer to recover from than my upper body. So it's more going to, that's just going to end up being an extra rest day. Is uh, that like your adductors? It's it, honestly, it's, it's kind of like my quads and ad, yeah. And adductors, but, yeah. but more like quads um, than anything. Like my hamstrings actually recover decent and glutes decent, but, yeah, that's kind of the, the the trial and error period. And I think a lot of people... And some of that stuff, right? So even with like that, like recovery stuff, we can look at degrees of like, you know, voluntary activation um, and then the length and tension relationship, you know, and then the length that you're training the muscle and generally sees, you know, we can kind of get an idea that recovery is going to be slower or faster for some muscle groups than others. However, 
I'd never exclude the law of individuality. So like you're talking about, generally speaking, quads should recover faster for more people because of the fact that their fiber type ratio tends to Mm -hmm. be a little more on the the type one side, slightly more than the type two side. However, one of the things that came up in a study that Chris and I were looking at months ago was I was like, check this out. I'm like, this one thing the researchers went into was that for different divisions of a muscle, the intervariability of the fiber type ratios are really huge. So like somebody might have a division, literally like a subdivision in their biceps, like ton of type two fibers where the next guy doesn't. Mm-hmm. So he's going to recover slower. He's going to have be more susceptible to muscle damage just in some of those little areas. Hey, Paul, I thought we were wrapping this up. We are. So <laughs> what I was getting to right there was, is that you're figuring out like the frequency thing, Here's the thing for guys, pick your stable motions that you can overload over a long period of time to have good enough motions and then figure out, start on the lower volume tiers and start on a frequency that's one to two times a week. And then you're going to have to do some experimentation. You're not going to, nobody's going to be able to give you the answers for all this stuff. And I made a post about this. Science can't tell you everything. It can give you a little bit of a roadmap to get where you need to go, but you're going to have to actually go into the gym and figure out in those and terms track. where you're going to see the most pro. Right. I don't, that's, yeah. That, that's the thing. Again, like, there's dude, so you, much, there's so. That's why I tell people here, like, let me give give me a That's why I tell people for my groups, if you come to my groups, it gives you the chance to actually go in and standardize your, your ranges of motion. It gives you a chance to go in and track your, basically your loading, your progress. And while total volume load is not um, a direct indicator of hypertrophy, if you're taking all your sets to failure, you're tracking total volume load, you can use a kind of a guide. Hey, what's going on here? If I'm using the same number of exercises for the same number of sets to failure, if my total volume load is consistently going up, this way to measure progressive overload. So generally speaking, volume load is not a way you can measure like muscle growth or has like a, a kind of a relationship with muscle growth, but you have, like you said, you have to track stuff. I logged booked everything for decades and decades. Like I have to every rep, like every intensity technique. And now guys are like, I'm like, when was the last time you logged, log booked, like uh, six months of your workouts? And I like never. I'm like, okay, dude, like you, you're not even doing the bare minimum. The bare minimum. You want the maximum results, and I'm not even going to do the bare minimum. So yeah. you have to log your stuff, track it again. Totally plugging my stuff, but as far as that goes, but I don't care because it's worth the value. Come in, you can do, you know, you well, get one yeah, week. plug it, wrap it up. Yeah. Where people can find you. So, uh, they, like you said, they can find me on Lift Run Bank One. The whole reason why it's Lift Run Bank One is because my main account, Lift Run Bank, um, got deleted multiple times for memes i've heard wild stories about why i lost my account lost my account four times it was because of memes during covid i was posting 50 memes a night for people for entertainment and (laughs) i would get flagged for memes what was wild was they were the memes i got from instagram but then i would get flagged in my story that this meme's offensive and then they would say you're losing your account that happened four times i didn't get flagged because of how you talk mean to people I'm a big crybaby toddler. No, like how you talk. I didn't get, I never lost an account for that. I lost my account for memes every time. And I stopped posting memes. And then people were mad that I stopped posting memes. I'm like, what do you want me to keep my account? So they can find me at Lift Run Bank One. Um, they can find me at Train Heroic. If you search for my name, you'll find all my programs. And that's pretty much 
the um i think instagram is set up so that it automatically puts my stuff out on somewhere on facebook mm -hmm. but i don't and then on tiktok tiktok i do i post stuff on tiktok yeah i actually like the kids out of tiktok because now the ones that follow me kind of they're they they there's a lot of them that do want to learn and i love those mm -hmm. kids so for any of my kids that that are to follow me on tiktok that comment and listen to the podcast. I think you guys, you you guys are awesome, and you guys are going to be the next. I think this next generation is going to raise the bar because of all the stuff we're doing now. Yeah, it takes time to make change. Hundred um, percent. Cool. Well, thank you. This was a marathon podcast. This yeah, was two hours and forty minutes. <laughs> I mean, come on. Um, <laughs> That's a misconception about me too, because I post short answers, but I, I enjoy a conversation. Yeah, and talk yeah. And stuff. I mean, at some point, at some point, we'll have to do it again. With uh, there's so many things we can talk about. But... You know what? I, somehow we'll manage. We'll get Chris on one, and the oh and... man. That would be I like this past podcast I did with him. That was the other thing. You can find me on the Chris and Paul show on Spotify. We are actually starting to blow up over there. Um, so the, the podcast over there is starting to blow up and that's again, super exciting, Nick, because I do think I'm starting to get a lot of people say, we listen to the podcast and I see a lot of people really getting into this stuff and that's pretty exciting for me. So like yeah, I said, no, congrats. It's all, it's, it's, uh, they're intense listens. Um, but you but got I, it, bro. We, we bring it, we bring it on the podcast. Yeah. You, you gotta be, we don't, we, we for a long time talked uh, one of the things we said was we, we don't men mention people's names on the podcast in a negative way. We never do that. And then we don't. Um, uh, the other thing is, is that we try to stick to like one topic and we don't have a time limit. But and Chris and I also talked back and forth for a while before we did about do we want to dumb it down? And eventually, we're like, hell no, we're not dumbing it down. No, there's enough there's dumb many... down. If you want to listen to a dumbed down podcast, go listen to Huberman. You can go listen to his his podcast, and that's a dumbed down podcast. So if you want some brain rot, go there. So I'm not on my podcast now, so I can actually kind of be a little bit unhinged. But <laughs> I, I, I think there are people, Nick, that's a whole different podcast. If you have him back, we can talk about that. There are people that are bad for the industry. Huberman and Gary Brecker are two people I think that are bad for the industry as a whole because they give out atrocious information. Brecker's worse than anybody. He's on a level that, <laughs> that it's like, industry. I'm just going to make shit up that does like doesn't even happen. So, Well, maybe maybe next time. Next time you have me on, I can do more an unhinged version. Chris will not let me do any unhinged version of anything. If you go listen to my last one, I, I allowed a little bit to slip in. That was kind of funny. His face was hilarious on the other end of it. But, uh, dude, 100%, um, I enjoyed this. I think it's it's hard to find people that can discuss these spaces together. So it, it's usually pretty fun. Uh, we can get together and kind of go over this stuff. So uh, I just know, I just know that my fiance and my two Frenchies are in the other room and I can hear them kind of rustling around. Not my dude, fiance. I'm telling you, once you're Dogs. not paying attention to them for long enough, they start start acting like kids. So yeah, but thanks, I love them. Thanks so for much. having me on, brother. And um, I will send you that paper, too. Yeah, please do. All right. Really, again, thank you so much. And uh, that's the episode, everyone. And that was today's episode of the BFR Better for Results podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, I would love if you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're watching or listening on. I really appreciate the support.